We gotta ease into this like an old man into a hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> I have, a, I have a quick question. This is a genuine question. Is has the podcast started? Maybe I don't know. It, are we just Josh, into it? That's what I'm Josh, Josh is editing it. Because <laughs> I'm like, did I miss the intro? Well, here's the transition. Uh, uh, something about the geography of England. Ooh. Oh, go on. <laughs> go on. There we go. Yeah. Yes. Okay, speaking of which, first off, this is Nashville CA. Welcome all. Uh, I'm Josh. With me, as always, is my co-host, Sean. Say hi, Sean. Hi, Sean. And today, we have the... Uh, I think I used what I used, creative force last time, but Umar might be even more of a creative force than Dustin was. Don't tell Dustin. <laughs> But uh, we have the wonderful Umar from our uh, our friend from the Discord once again. And Umar, tell us you have you have sent me comics that yeah. you have wrought with your own hands. Yeah. What is it like? What do you do? Tell me about this because I love all your stories and am fascinated by them. Oh, thank you very much, Josh. And also, I just wanted to say hi, Sean, as well. I don't want to be left out. Um, hi, Omar. Hi. <laughs> so. Hi, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> hi, Josh. Hi, Omar. Hi, Sean. Gold bases covered yeah. there. Just making I think sure. We, I think we've completed the trifecta. <laughs> there we are. There we are. Um, yeah. Um, I Thank you very much. And I write comics as what started off as like a sort of hobby slash I don't know what the phrase side hustle or whatever, but not even like making anything that was made, just making little short stories. But over the last couple of years, I think this has become like a genuine income for me, which is weird, which is mm -hmm. baffling, just making up shit. And then people are like, yeah, yeah, we pay you money for it. I'm like, okay, cool. So <laughs> it's just like that. Is, it started off from about 10 or so years ago, obviously been a lifelong fan of comics, films, you know, all sorts of, I'm not saying content, I'm saying entertainment. Fuck that yes. No, no, no. Yeah, entertainment. I just everything. Uh, but I sort of gravitated towards comics, where um, I, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar uh, with the sort of forums of comics that they no longer exist because again, forums don't really exist anymore. It's all either Twitter or it's Discord now. It's all there. But like, there was uh, something called Jinxville, where it, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. So it's sort of familiar with that. And then obviously transitioned over to other forum forums like Miller World and all this other stuff. And that's where I sort of got into comics, like, you know, looking at other creators who were trying to create their own sort of indie stuff. And I started off with shorts, like short stories, four page, similar to the sort of vibe that you get with, a, a, you know, the 2000 AD publishing company. It's, a, you mm -hmm. know, Dread, all those sort of stuff. Uh, you know, Rogue Trooper, yeah, Rogue Trooper and all that stuff. So. Those are the sort of um, vibe, the sort of layout that I went for. But then I, I did that for a couple of years, went into some uh, anthologies, done my own sort of shorts and everything like that, and then just 
switched over to, I think in 2017, I decided, yeah, why not make my own comic? And that was where Untethered came from. That uh, I collaborated with a, you know, another forum uh, friend that you, you know that you meet over the years uh, called Elliot Elliot Bolson. And he came up, he came up with the initial sort of short story for Untethered, uh, mm-hmm. which was basically, long story short, it's, it's what happens when a guy drinks a genie's bottle, and it's kind of like the, the hijinks that happened after that, but also ended up getting, I wanted to get deep with it, because I, I just wanted to, I wanted to be like, yeah, yeah, there's hijinks, but no, let's get into the bottom of it. If you drink a genie's bottle, it's going to fuck you up, so <laughs> let's go with that. So, so I went, went down that avenue, and uh, the first three issues were well-received, all you know, funded through Kickstarter, and I sort of built the base from there, and then I thought for my second story, which I think is the more sort of popular one that people like uh, lad um i decided to yeah. go high concept <laughs> like really just you know one of the films that we're talking about today was a really massive influence on it and yeah it's uh, just picking it up from there so lad did five issues short it's a combination of folk horror and sort of you know uk gritty gangster sort of stories but i wanted to combine the two because you know, one of the things i haven't really seen well there have been some Films that have combined them really well, like Kill List. I really love mm. Kill List. Um, but again, uh, and all these other uh, films that we talk about that, that influence Lad. But I just wanted to tell that sort of story of <laughs> it's, it's a whole cliche of like, you know, when something doesn't quite seem as it is. And that's the sort of vibe because everyone keeps telling me, oh, I love Lad. It's a really good supernatural story. And I'm like, where are you getting that from? I, I, I didn't put anything supernatural in it, which I like <laughs> because. I, I subverted it enough, but um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty much where I am around, and, and even now it's um, moving on to other stories, other things. It's, it's it, um, like lack of a better word, it's getting fucking crazy with this sort of like how it's gone because there's a video game I worked on, there's some you know work for hire stuff. I had to sign NDAs. I never signed an NDA in my life. <laughs> like so, so this sort of yeah, honestly, it's going crazy. So when you had to sign your NDA. Uh, did you immediately freak out and assume that you're going to start blabbing everything? Because that's what I do. I'm always like, oh, sh- oh shit, I'm going to say all the words now. Yes, yes, I can't even say I'm working on anything. I don't know, like, like, when you look at the words, I'm like, I need like a lawyer or, as you guys would know, Matt's Southern lawyer to help me decipher all of this because it is just <laughs> like, oh, it's nerve-wracking. But then uh, I think one of the good things is when you get the NDAs, even though it might be from whatever, a big company or, or whatever usually the contacts i have are chill and i'm like like this is a big scary thing can i talk to you about it don't, say, don't worry just you know just carry on with your work we be in contact just um yeah um welcome to the team <laughs> or whatever but just, just yeah, don't tell anyone until we're ready and then i'm like cool uh well actually that works in my favor because uh social media and all that sort of stuff i sort of gave up it's, it's weird it's a weird thing i only use it literally for like self-promotion which seems to be working fine for me and i really recommend <laughs> to as many people get the fuck away from social media it is shit so <laughs> so that's helped, helped me out so i'm like so because that's another thing whenever do the nda and i guess in the past people would have blabbed it on social media i'm like you won't get that problem with me i barely go on there so it's all good well, you don't have to worry. Sean is already way ahead of you. I don't think he, he ever got near social media to begin with. Well, I, ah, I had an Instagram. <laughs> and then during the start of quarantine, I got back on it because I was 
lonely and it was quarantined, so I was like, oh, what's everyone up to? And then I started to get full of rage towards <laughs> so many people that didn't even matter. Like, my old best friend's mom turned out to be a real nationalist piece of shit. Um, and so I was just like, you know, it's time to get back off of this. So Reddit would be the closest thing, but uh, Reddit, I don't really post on there much because it's all kind of gross, too. So yeah. just Discord, man. Discord is uh, the place to be. It's, uh, it's like I'll, the best yeah. outlet that I've found online with the healthiest communities. Absolutely. It's a sort of how I explain it to my wife and, and why I'm saying, you know, I, I don't go on social media anymore, but I do frequent Discord sort of servers a lot more is that it's like, it's like social media or Twitter specifically, but with a bouncer at the door to keep away the, the shitheads. <laughs> sort of like, no, yeah. no, we don't, we don't really care about that. It, because it's a smaller community, it's a bit more concentrated. And, and if someone does step out of line or say something a bit weird, it, it's a bit easier to sort of call them out, out on it because you kind of know the person as opposed mm -hmm. to some random person say something racist, xenophobic, weird, or something that is just generally, no, why are you saying that? They won't react because they don't know you. They don't give a shit. They're just going to keep saying it. Right. Yeah, it's the, it's the an, uh, anonymous factor of things that really, I don't think humans were ever meant to interact with each other just as passerby on the internet hi like highway, and we don't even know who anyone is, but we're going to just take a shot at each other real quick and then never interact again in our lives. Uh, seems like a weird way for humans to have evolved. Yes, yeah, at Thunderdome. <laughs> Eight billion people enter, no one leave. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, in a nutshell. Uh, well, we're also talking about a movie where one man enters a town and six people don't leave. We're talking Dead Man's Shoes. This movie is from 2004. It's directed by Shane Meadows, written by Patty Considine and Shane Meadows, and starring Patty Considine. Um, Umar, I know you are a big Shane Meadows fan. Uh, I myself am as well. I, I haven't watched any of his stuff in a while, but I've, uh, This Is England is great. Yeah. I think I saw... Uh, one or two of the the special one-off series where they're they're labeled by years 86 and so on yeah yeah and then i also saw a movie that i don't know if anyone's ever seen um ladonk scorsese yes ladonk and scorsese <laughs> it's a it's a mockumentary starring patty considine and this real rapper called scorsese and patty's in character and it, it, it's a real weird trip of a music movie and I liked parts of it. Parts of it were way too long. But one thing I do notice is that Shane Meadows loves to put Shane Meadows loves the needle drop um, montage in his movies. Yeah. You know, he really uses his movies as a way to like share his playlist with the audience. Um, and this movie has one of my favorite soundtracks. I think this movie is the music and this is excellent. All the choices he made. Uh, I've only seen Dead Man's Shoes and his uh, Stone Roses documentary, which I absolutely love. I'm a big fan of uh, at least 
two entire Stone Roses albums, which I think is one more than most people. <laughs> I don't even know that band. I've heard of them. Uh-huh. Well, Stone Roses are pretty good. Yeah. To me, they're like Oasis, but not full of dickheads. <laughs> so for dickheads. a little, as many for dickheads. a little, a little bit of context. One reason that I kind of linked myself to Dead Man's Shoes in a little bit of English culture with my desire, my devotion to Carl Pilkington. Um, I have a brother-in-law from uh, Yorkshire, so he's Northern English, and mm. so a lot of these things set around Manchester. This, this, if I were to guess, Umar, yeah. I would guess this is a Northern England location. Yeah, so, so basically, another reason, oh wait, just before I carry on, I just want to re- uh, clarify, when I say Stone Roses, I've just remembered Ian Brown's in it, and he's turned into a massive tool as well, so it's kind of equal footing so but anyway uh, just carrying on uh, with, with uh, um, again uh, English geography it's, yeah, it's in so the north it's, it's, it, yeah it's not too far from me because I'm based in Lancashire and Lancashire Yorkshire are like, rival counties which basically if you were to put it in geography in, in terms of the states you're probably on about like you know like it's just down the road for you guys but it's like oh no it's about 40 miles away which is absolutely massive for England, but it's noise. So yeah, there's a whole like war of the roses, all this historical bullshit. But it's pretty much what another reason reason why I like Dead Man's Shoes. It kind of looks like my my back garden, pretty much. It's that it's like this, the scenes that you see of them walking in the countryside, walking uh, from town to town uh, with uh, Richard and his brother. Uh, it's a sort of it looks exactly like that. That is basically if if you if you travel about. 20 minutes from where I live, it looks like that. So, yeah, I, I don't know where it's based, per se. I, I would guess uh, Peak District, uh, Yorkshire, and so, that, because, again, that's where a lot of uh, Shane Meadows films are. So that's what I would guess. And, and it, that, another reason why I haven't finished it, it, it looks like my hometown. Is it always this green there? Because... Unless it's raining. This, this movie is beautiful um just the shots of them walking through the side and then on the hill and when you especially i love when you're in the town in the town square there's a mm. shot where it shows the like the castle or something oh, yeah. up on the hill that old church or whatever mm. it is and it's just you know we don't have that much history here so <laughs> yeah. to, to to be set in this little town it, it gives me such a different feel and vibe than anywhere i've seen in united states so, so yeah, pretty much. Um, this is uh, like I've always been, like a small town, village, or whatever sort of boy. When I go to that the city, say London, Manchester, I'll, it's all right to visit, but I couldn't see myself living there. Uh, but when, like, basically, the areas that the film is set is where Tolkien got inspiration for Lord of the Rings. So when you think of Lord of, Lord of the Rings and the Shire. Even though it's not exactly in the, you know, in the, you know, because it's mostly around here, Lancashire, where you got the idea, but it's green around here a lot. And Peak District is a fucking beautiful part of the country. It's uh, because they don't quite have mountains there. They have like fells. I don't know <laughs> the difference. They're like, they're like little mountains, I guess. But yeah, obviously a couple of years ago since I've been, but yeah, it's it looks exactly like how it shows it on the film where maybe nowadays there's a few more well 
it's true to the film as well, you know, some sort of uh, yobs walking around and all that sort of people with their big Rottweilers without any leads and letting them shit all over. But, you know, not, not that much. It still has, you still have a little grannies walking their little dogs on there. It's, and it's just nice and serene, which uh, I think also makes it equally like how he manages to like, juxtapose. So you've got this serene green setting. It's, you know, very earthy and everything like that. But you got this absolutely horrific story right in the middle of it, which, again, what, part of the reason why I love this uh, film and it's so, like, uh, influential on Lad. That's, the juxtaposition came up multiple times when I was taking notes here. Like, the 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 rural setting versus these, like, wannabe small-time gangsters uh, and the... For me, the music, yeah, like I put against the action is absolutely amazing. Um, Shane Meadows talked about like wanting to make a Scorsese film, basically, uh, and you can totally see that with his just mastery of uh, using the different tones against each other, uh, and also in the the car that they drive that the, the gangsters CV, drive around. I think it is little Citroen. yes, little shitty Citroen. With with a goofy face painted on the front and the name Dolly on it, like it's the the silliest, least uh, harmful little car that they're driving around, and they're all packed into it all the time. I absolutely yeah. love it. Umar, do you think this side of England is? Do you think one like this is a pretty accurate representation of a small town? Is I what I feel you're saying, um... but how like how is the representation? Because I feel like. So often you just get kind of the London side of things and the posh British accent. I feel like a lot of American audiences haven't gone north towards Scotland, you know? No, no, I get you. Um, there's like a saying uh, in England that, you know, it's grim up north. And this kind of thing, obviously it's hyperbolic, it's turned it up to 11. Because uh, obviously I'm in a small town and yes, there's occasional... Nothing to the level of this usually, but you know, there's general stuff. You know, crime happens wherever you look. But he's captured that in a you know, cinematography sort of side and sort of feeling, pretty much how it feels. Because even though this is uh, 17 years old, and obviously everything's updated, you don't see as many working men's clubs. Uh, you know, like the pubs that they have and everything like that. So, you know, everything's modernized a little bit, but they still have that sort of vibe, that sort of Everyone just sort of like, like for example, in, in the opening, well, not opening scene, but in the first interaction with Richard and uh, the uh, what's the name guy with the hat, Herbie, Herbie, when he Herbie. goes, yeah, he goes, oh, what are you looking at? And he goes, you, you cunt. And it's just, and then no one does anything because it's okay, um, audience. Umar's English, he can say it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that, that word. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why. It's so. It, it's, it's how we say hello pretty much over here like so so often like that's why no one bats an eyelid and it's just and and i'll be honest the sort of following scenes after which it does again it is everything's wrapped up to 11 where it's you know hyperbolic and you know extreme but still the sort of apology afterwards is quintessentially english where it goes oh even though you know rich is sort of testing him out or whatever you know doing his own sort of stuff 
but it's the sort of like Hervey when he's in a situation and he's like, no, 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 it's all right. Yeah, yeah, you call me that. It's, 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 <laughs> what else can you do in that situation other than accept his apology than when you go around the corner, just run? <laughs> I mean, it would be nice if people, if you could call each other cunts and then still not get into a fist fight or worse. Oh, yeah, um, no, it happens all the time. Like, just like, oh, it's just in passing again. Again, I'm going to say the word again, but it's like, oh, look at that daft cunt. And it means nothing. It's just like, <laughs> like, like oh, it just same as in America when you say, like, you know, stupid bastard or whatever same sort of level it's not that bad over here just now have you guys come around to changing the word for cigarettes up there yet no no it's still that but (laughs) but i guess with e-cigs coming in Uh (laughs) cigarettes should be pissed out so yeah yeah. what what offensive term can you call a vape pen I hope it doesn't. Yeah, it's really a joke. Crazy. You don't need to. No, 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 you no, don't no, need no, to come no, up with one. No, no, it's no, a I'm joke. Like, 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 I hope it doesn't go extreme. Like, oh, you know what? Since we're following that trajectory for cigarettes, let's call them the yeah. N word. What? No, don't do that. No, 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 don't do that, guys. If we're talking about swear words, how do you guys say the T word? T W A T. Twat. Twat. Because because we say twat. Like that, like, oh, and yeah. again, it's just another. Well, I've what, 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 how did you pronounce it differently? Twat, T W A T. But I hear twat sometimes in films in American films. Even like uh, Jason Statham. Twat. You twat. Twat. It, twat. We twat. say it. It sounds almost like an O, like an yeah. O sound, like twat. Yes. No. It's that. It's so weird when I hear. It's that jarring, especially when I think I was watching Spy, which again is an amazing mm-hmm. film. And Jason Statham, who is a Cockney guy, who was playing a Cockney guy in that film, says twat. And it threw me. It really <laughs> threw me. I was like, oh, you could tell the director. He, like, like, in the first take, Statham said, oh, twat. And then, uh, what's his name? Uh, is it Paul Feig? No, no, no. Yeah, whoever, did, I think it's Paul Feig who directed. He'd be like, what was that, Jason? I don't know, I don't know that word. <laughs> and then he had to change it. That's one of the sort of baffling things that it's, yeah, it's, TWAT, we just said twat. Why has Statham not given us Crank 3 yet? We all want it. Yeah. <laughs> we all, yes. What else does he have going on? He, oh. has like, he has like a billion dollars from the Fast and Furious franchise. You tell me Jason Statham can't get Neville, Dean, and Taylor back together and bankroll <laughs> his own Crank 3? Like, why not? Why not, Jason? Also, I don't even know if you could classify his accent as English anymore. I think he's now just in his own class of accent where he's just like, he has the Statham accent now. Stathanese. Um, <laughs> with, with Statham, he's, uh, oh, he did that Guy Ritchie film again recently. Forgot the name of it. Uh, Wrath of Man, Sutton Peters. Pretty decent. I like it. Not bad. Yeah, it was- Josh wasn't crazy about it. It was fine. Like basically, they could have edited about twenty minutes out of it, and he did that whole Guy Ritchie thing of like, "This is what happened," but ten minutes ago, this is what happened, and I'm like, yeah. "Fine." But yeah, I don't. Half an hour was interesting. I don't want to compare it to Rashomon, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dead Man's Shoes. This movie starts uh, when we get some old footage of two brothers as kids and babies. And as we're watching this, there uh, we also see two men walking in the field. These men are Richard and Anthony, played by Patty Considine and Toby Kebbell. And the song playing is 
Vessel in Vain by Smog, Bill Callahan, who is an awesome artist and does kind of spoken word songs. I don't know, but he has this big, deep, burly voice, and um, I love his music. Yeah, same here. Um, so for both of these movies, these casts are amazing. Like, our primary actors are phenomenal, and I like I want to call it out over and over because there's so many little moments in both of these films where I'm just like, holy shit, like that's some acting right right there. I'm being acted to so well, and I love it. This movie sent me down um, a Patty Considine road where when I latch onto one actor and I just want to look at all their stuff, like I did mm-hmm. with Mads Mikkelsen at one point and um, a few others. And so I was watching his really small stuff, A Room for Romeo Brass, and um Jay Meadows did that. Oh did he? Um sure he did. That was a good movie. Um PU two thirty nine where he gets exposed to a lethal dosage of plutonium at a factory he works at, so then he steals some and tries to sell it on the black market before he dies. Um all sorts of like really small random movies. He's also in um I'm punching. I'm air punching. Come on. Uh, uh, Russell uh, Crowe. Uh, uh, Cinderella no, Man. Yeah, no. yeah. Uh, no, when it, um, was it Cinderella Man or was it called... It was, it was another one where he was a boxer recently. Like, uh, the Journeyman. Oh, Journeyman. Journeyman. I need to see that one. Yeah, yeah. So, but he's an excellent actor. Um, the only thing I think he's been a miss in was The Outsider, that HBO series, because they made him do a really thick southern... United States accent, and it just that. it just comes off kind of twangy like this. <laughs> I I feel like they should have just been like, all right, Patty, here's your story. You're an immigrant who owns this strip club. Now, like sometimes I don't get why movies decide to force an accent on a character when it's so easily just, hey, they moved here at some point, you know, like right. Yeah, he, he was so, also in. Hot Fuzz as uh, oh, one of the Andes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I just love it. I think he's become like a meme of, you know, when the copper goes up to John mm-hmm. Pegger and they come back out of frame, look at him again. <laughs> he's just brilliant. He's just, he, he, yeah, he's, he's, he can be both be super serious, like in the, like, like Dead Man's Shoes and, and all, you know, all, all like the sort of, like, he's kind of like the, the solid guy that you need to fill in that role, like you said, like, you know, we need you to be this character. He would deliver in most instances. But he's also got a goofy side, which really makes it, like, funny, the sort of, yeah, just hot fuss, <laughs> just forever in, in your head, sort of, uh, yeah, the Andes and how he just sort of is, because is, I think he has a Cornwall. That's, again, just another dialect within, that more, more like West Country, the more sort of, like, I can't, I can't even do that accent, but, yeah, sort of, like, farmery sort of accent which he does really well and yeah he, he's sublime he's, he's a really good actor he did some promo videos for Le Donc that mockumentary and it's like he's in character teaching you how to do dance moves and he's in a full tracksuit and at one point it's like don't tell mom and he's like humping the ground giving the shh symbol to the camera and that's like one of the dance moves <laughs> <laughs> so, it just seems like uh, just an actor I, I can um, always count on to be solid. Toby Cabell, after this, I saw him in Rock and Rolla, and he seemed like he was on an upward trajectory. 
and then I he kind of vanished, and then I saw him in that movie where the hurricane has a face. Storm. Yes. Hurricane Heist. Hurricane, hurricane Heist. Heist. What is this? I love that movie. His his dad died in a storm at one point, and so like as the hurricane is like forming, he talks to the hurricane. He's like, "They're underestimating you." And then as he's like driving away, you can see like a skull in the clouds of the hurricane or something. <laughs> Check it out. It's a wild movie. But because I know Tony Toby Kebbell more from uh, is sort of he's he's like basically the the second uh andy circus where he does a lot of the monkey movies and he did kong and all that stuff like he's meant to be a really and, and he is a really good motion capture guy so i have okay. no idea about this hurricane movie um yeah. he's, he's in it with the australian guy from true blood and they're both doing again Southern accents, which is doing ni- neither of them any favors, unfortunately. Okay, I, I gotta seek this out. I've... It's one of the goofiest action movies. Uh, it at one point, so there's a heist during a hurricane. Yeah. If you didn't get that from the title, uh-huh. and at one point, the the good guys and the bad guys are facing off, and the good guys, I think, are using um, uh, car hubcaps. They're throwing them into the wind and the wind is whipping them at the bad guys. And they're like taking out the bad guys with these projectile uh, hurricane. Uh, uh, check out. Are the airbenders? They can look at when the it's, trajectory is going to go right. At, oh, my yeah, God. It's you got so it stupid. It's it's glorious. It also has Neil McDonough in it, who if you see his laser blue eyes that pierce a hole into your soul, you'll do you know who I'm talking about? OK. Uh, and uh, it has. um. Who's the woman in it? Maggie Grace? Maggie Grace. From Lost and... And the Fog remake. Oh, hello. Hey, look at that. Good job, Josh. Uh, I know Toby Kebbell from probably my second favorite uh, Black Mirror episode. Yeah, Uh, that was a good one. The entire history of you. That's a good one. That Uh, introduced... that, That was like a foundation episode for the entire series. Because after mm-hmm. that, they just get, like, this technology, you now, you now know what this technology is, and we'll use it again and again. Yeah. He was excellent uh, in that one. He's also in Servant, uh, the M. Night Shyamalan-produced um, uh, TV show on Apple, Apple TV, uh, and he is fantastic in that, playing opposite Lauren Ambrose. Uh, what is I that? love that show. What is that one? I'll, Where... I'll what it is. Oh, servant is um a this man and his wife uh have recently lost their child and so they have um a mock baby okay to help them like grieve a yeah a coping strategy thing yes and um this they hire a nanny for the because the mother is so like down this track that this is a real baby so they hire a nanny and this isn't big spoilers because this happens like in the first episode, but um, so that she lays the, the, the fake baby down and then in the middle of the night, you hear a baby cry. Oh, <laughs> and it's like, a, oh, shit, what is happening now? And there's like cults involved and uh, <laughs> you're not quite sure what's magic and what's real and what is her fantasies. And Toby Kebbell plays like the straight man through this whole thing who's kind of 
trying to keep his head together and keep his family together. And it's such a great adult role for him that, you know, coming from from this, you're just like, get to see the whole range of what he can do. Wow. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of TV shows that I'm missing out on because I, I just end up watching the three like same movies over and over again. It's either Manhunter, <laughs> Dead Man's Shoes, or Sorcerer. I have I have a real oh, yes. theme going on, don't I? Just like downers and just sort of, yeah. <laughs> so it's like all these TV shows. People, are, oh, you got to watch Loki, which I heard is good, but I'm like, but I'm watching Sorcerer for the fourth time. Don't ask me why, but I want to watch it again. Bye. <laughs> Umar, you gotta watch Squid Game. It's on I Netflix. Heard of that. Yeah, literally, because uh, how I heard of that is that my wife just showed me a meme and she explained to me what Squid Game is. It's like, uh, uh, like, it's, it's in, is it based in Korea, South Korea? And it's, yeah, and it's the the people who are fringes of society. Uh, like they tell them do some tasks and they become billionaires and and all that stuff. But the meme was more interesting. What she showed me, which was a still from the from the from the show and it's just basically one character saying to the other eh, excuse me uh, i want to play a game with you and then the second frame is a repetition of that first image and it goes excuse me i'm talking to you and the caption at the bottom says if squid games was based in london it's like no one talks <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. <sighs> uh yeah it's it's pretty wild it's they it's a completely fictitious show because people always ask me, wait, wait, this isn't real. So I have to completely fictitious show where a bunch of people who are down on their luck for one reason or another sign up to participate in this game. And if you, there's six children's games that you play. If you win, you win a bunch of money. But they turn out to be games of death. And yeah. so that's the basic premise without spoiling anything, really. That's just the plot. Um it's 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 wild. It's it's really wacky with some of the stuff going on and really dark. Um, it makes some weird choices towards the end. But anyways, it was a fun show. No, but it's funny that because I literally asked my wife that it's all going. Um, is this a real thing or is this uh like like a you know a serialized uh, show? The reason why I asked that is because. I wouldn't be surprised if that was a real game. If I'm being honest with the sort of way that we're going, if it was like, oh yeah, 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 if these uh, marginalized people don't win these uh, games, we kill them. And I'm like, so is this on Bravo or HBO? Because I don't know. Listen, man, lately our friend who was showing Korean escape room TV shows, we ran out of those to watch. And I had to bow out at this point. He started putting on Japanese spanking shows which is like they're game shows but then you get punished by getting spanked and i was like oh, i you know i think i'm good no. here i think Why? this is the line of like kooky ridiculous culture that i can't quite cross yeah it's i like, didn't know that was a thing oh it, it's yeah it's, it's, it's a sean thing. you look like you've seen some stuff <laughs> you seem like you've been through the ring i've seen a lot <laughs> I've seen a lot, my friends, especially after watching this damn movie. This yeah. was a lot heavier and darker than I remembered it when I first saw it 10, yeah. 12 years ago. I, di I didn't want to tip my hand uh, too early, but I wanted to text you guys this morning uh, the feel-bad movie of the year. Yes. It is. Yes. I, I just texted, uh, I was watching it with a friend this morning, and I just wrote, downer ending. <laughs> but it's oh. like, the whole thing is downer he said yeah the only part that was like ha i'd say the happiest part was when the guy thought he saw a monster outside 
yeah. Oh, yeah, with the mask. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's the same thing because uh, I've been a fan of this film for. Like, I'll tell you guys how I came across it initially. Um, yeah, please do. I didn't watch it in the cinema or anything like that because obviously it had a small release. It was an indie sort of a show. Uh, sorry, indie film and everything like that. I think I think it was produced by Film 4. Um, film 4 is uh, is like a, a production company of Channel 4. Channel 4 is, in England, for years, we used to have four channels, BBC One, BBC Two, ITV and Channel 4 and Channel 5 came in like the 2000s. Yes, we had Sky and all this stuff and all, but basically that was the channels we had. And Channel 4 has always been like the sort of alternative to BBC. Uh, nowadays, it's pretty much all the same. Now, you know, they're not as left, um, you know, left yielding or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, so there used to be some good stuff on there, like, you know, Brass Eye and all that stuff. And there's still a lot of good stuff on there, but it's just, it's it's more mainstream or whatever because it used to be like a fringe channel and one of the things that they made was uh, Film 4, a uh, production company I think in the mid-90s or 2000s and there's been a lot of really good films that have come through it um, all I would say is just check on Wikipedia there'll be loads of Film 4 films and you'd be like oh shit I didn't know this was a Film 4 but Dead Man's Shoes was one of them so in 2004 it was made and I think I remember watching it around 2006, 2005, when it came as a premiere. And as a teenager, me and my brother, uh, we just, uh, you know, like we do on Channel 4, because that, that became, sorry, Film 4 became like a, uh, around then one of the other free channels that we had, because again, just to recap, we had one, two, three, four, five for years, but then around early 2000 or mid, like 2005 or so, we got something called Freeview which is, you know, with the digital age, you've got like 30 more extra channels ranging from like more entertainment stuff and Film 4 was one of the free channels. And uh, so they premiered it around 2006 and we saw the synopsis on, you know, on the on the TV planet, Man, Vengeance Plan and all this stuff and us being like, you know, like dweeby teenagers and, in a, you know, early, my brother's a few years older than me in his 20s and we were like, oh shit, let's watch this. And we got the same sort of thing that you got because obviously it's very weird watching it with your brother because it has such oh, a sort of brotherly wow. bond in there. And you're like, but the thing is, it really hooked us in. And because we were watching it first, uh, like, oh, first we were laughing our ass off the first half an hour because it has the, the tricks and, and the sort of dialogue that they have is hilarious. Because one thing I remember is that, you know, the, one of the sidekicks when they're looking through the porn mags. In the back end. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. And yeah, th that is a thing that was in England. You used to get like, when you go into the news agents on the top shelf, they don't have them as much anymore because internet. There used to be dirty mags with the front covered on. Like, you know, and then obviously, you know, like guys, sleazy guys would go in. I'll have some fags, milk, and, you know, big tits over there, please. You know, <laughs> it's just how it was. Um, so, so, like, and. And weirdly enough, like these ads were like it anyway. Like even when you read like mainstream magazines, I remember, like I used to collect. Do you guys remember Empire magazine? Do you know Empire? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a reputable uh, magazine with reviews and all that stuff. I'm pretty sure up until all the way up until the late like 2010, even they used to have those sort of ads in the back of the magazine. I shit you not, in Empire, the sort of maybe not as extreme as they were saying, but it was like. Like you'd be like, oh, here's an interview with Jodie Foster. You turn the page, 
call girls everywhere at the end right. in the last four pages. And it's crazy. It was just like how it was just regular. So obviously for the first half an hour, me and my brother were laughing when we were like, oh, these guys are funny because I, like, <laughs> I just saw the shit they say where, uh, where what, what does he say? Like, oh, like, you know, I love English cock. Your, 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 your jizz tastes oh, yeah. great. And then he's like, dirty slug or something like that. And I'm like, just the way he says it is so funny just as a matter of fact. And uh, obviously, then after that, when Richard does his little pranks, they were funny. <laughs> like when he puts mm-hmm. the, the dye in the, the Sonny's hair, and he's like, what are you guys looking at? What? And they're like, uh. <laughs> like when he just, uh, you know, like just the sort of harmless things he start off with. But then when it got dark, it got dark, and we just had ourselves glued to the TV all the way till the end. So that's like my history with the, with the film. And... And everyone that I tell this about, and, and, and I apologize to Dustin, because he's yet to watch this, and I told him to watch it, it's going to be a massive, massive depressing movie for him. I have forewarned him, but <laughs> this is not a happy movie at all, but it's so good. So, I had seen this originally probably 2005, 2006, somewhere in that era, when it came out on DVD over here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I watched it in very close proximity to Old Boy. Yeah. Which, I mean, both Old Boy is more stylish, uh, more flashy, and Dead Man's Shoes is more kitchen sink drama. Uh, but they both c- tread a lot of the same ground, and both, when you if you get into them, like trick you and then beat the shit out of you, like <laughs> yeah. emotionally. Yeah. And. Yeah, I can't imagine. I was a grown adult seeing this, and even rewatching it again this morning, it it disturbed me. The way that they treat Anthony is so gross and skeeves me out so much. Like it is just like I said, the feel bad film. Like I want Richard to have even before the the end, before the reveals happen. I want him to have his vengeance because of how creepy and shitty these guys are yeah. towards Anthony. Yeah. I, I think this movie, if this were an American movie, could you imagine how different it would be? One, yeah. they would never be as dark, but he wouldn't, I don't think he would pay any punish. He wouldn't pay for committing these acts of violence that, no. you know, uh, if you watch, a movie that I think is similar to this, thinking about it, what you're saying, um, is I Saw the Devil, which oh, is uh, another revenge yeah. movie yeah. where it takes such a toll on the revenge taker that I these movies are telling us again and again that revenge, while maybe seemingly satisfying, it, it, it's never worth it to sacrifice yourself to to become yeah. that monster, you know? And I think that's like the American version of revenge versus seemingly the rest of the world has kind of a more mature idea of revenge. If, if this was an American movie, it would probably be called Death Wish 10. Charles Bronson <laughs> really hates you. <laughs> like, that's what they would go down. Cause... That's, that's very true. This is Death Wishy, isn't it? Yeah. This but, is but as just, very Death Wishy. Just with full of, but not shine up. Because Death Wish even though it's fun and I do enjoy them because when you look at what they are, it, it's when you try to dig beyond the, the facade of Death Wish, that's when you get into trouble. 
don't need to analyze like that. It's just hot garbage, but it's fun hot garbage. It's just, you know, <laughs> it's an architect going around shooting people. Sure, whatever. And he's Charles Bronson. Yeah, okay. And then I'm pretty sure he fires an RPG in number three or four at someone and he explodes. I'm like, how do you take this film seriously? But, <laughs> but that aside, what I love about Dead Man's Shoes is exactly what you said, Sean, where it's just the toll of revenge and the sort of, and also the people who, who created, who did the heinous crime, and also they're like, oh, we got to get to him before he gets to us. But even they're like, how though? Because yes, we might be criminals or whatever, want to be gangsters, but have we ever taken, like, like, fair enough, what they did to Anthony was horrific, but they they were fine with that because this other person, you know, Richard, is not out there to get him. He is not a broken shell of a man that has nothing to lose, genuinely nothing to lose, because by the end of the film, spoiler alert, he loses his own life. And it, and that scene, I think that's where the breaking point was for a lot of people as well, because obviously you get the reveal a few minutes ago, and then just that Richard's sort of monologue of like, I am the monster that oh. you created. That That is a fucking that, gut punch. That, yeah, that ending pressures oh. me. Yeah. It is that, that. That's why, like, not 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 saying all like you know, like there wouldn't be a, a U.S. version of this because there are some good. Like, for example, another film that I love that is similar to this and also a massive influence on Lad is uh, Blue Ruin, which yeah. is a fucking masterpiece. Which again would have been another film that I would have loved to talk about. And it's funny they're like ten years after this. Which is again, I don't, I don't know what to look into that because I'm pretty sure that's 2014, and that has a similar sort of vibe of, yeah, there's you know the character trying to get vengeance, but how, how does he do that? And it, it just it, instead of the other way around where Richard is, uh, you know, a stout, he's he's a very good like professional military paratrooper guy who has you know seen war and also has come home to see that his mentally challenged brother has been brutally murdered and the only way he can cope with it is by creating him in his mind as if he is still alive and someone to talk to and someone to assist him in this brutal vengeance spree he's going on the, the other side of it in blue ruin is this guy whose you know father died and now it's fallen on him that the guy who killed his father has come out he doesn't know how to get vengeance on people but he has to sort of figure it out and it is just messy and unforgiving in the same way as Dead Man's Shoes, but just that polar opposites where you got someone who's a trained killer, trained everything that takes a toll on him, but you got a person who has no idea what he's doing in Blue Ruin still takes a fucking toll on him, which is the is, both films. Is just that's power. a really good call. Um, so uh, Richard and his brother Anthony are living in an old abandoned building, and we get a flashback of. Anthony delivering groceries to the local scallywags who we've later turn out to be real pieces of shit. Mm. Um, uh, Anthony and Richard go into a local pub. This pub really confused me, Umar, because this to me looked not like a pub. It looked like just kind of an empty room with chairs and tables set up. Like It, it didn't look at all what I would think of a pub to look like. So, um, the thing is, me myself, obviously, I don't drink, so I don't, you know, know the culture of pubs that much. But I've been in a lot of them that I understand the different types, and this looked to me more like a a working men's club. 
which is something that I directly put in lad because that's like the base camp for the family, the uh, the lodge. I just call it like the Beacon Lodge because they always have that sort of name. So when you have a pub, you, you would generally think of the pub in uh, American Werewolf in 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 uh, London. The yes, boisterous sort. And those pubs do sort of exist, uh, you know, at the time as well, where they're just a roaring fire, everyone's drink, drinking out there. A workman, uh, uh, what do I call it? Uh, 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 I forgot what I call it, but you know, that, 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 that sort of a social club, that's it, a workman social club sort of thing, is more, it's very dated. Like if you type in uh, a working man's club or a working man's club and they are like straight up from like the 70s and they've never been updated. They, are, they look like they have secondary uses as, bingo halls or you know back in the day it used to be in like for other social events and someone's having like a christening so that's why it's got all these open spaces yeah that's what it felt like yeah, uh, yeah. bingo hall that, that's that's the sort of things that they have and i'm pretty yeah they call that working men's club working men's social club they're all sort of and they're very prominent around the north and they are dying out because just look at the decor man <laughs> like this was done in 2004 and it looked like it hadn't been changed since 1967, and it's true. A lot of them aren't, and it's just like, but but they are like a like a a tradition, and they are like a a, a staple of the north. Sometimes you get them around in the northwest, sometimes the northeast, like Newcastle side. They just like that sort of gritty sort of. Again, I don't look the history. I'm not the you know not the scholar in these sort of areas, but only only that I know that I see them loads, uh, or, you know, in my local area. But I think, you know, to do, as the name suggests, you know, like working men, probably back in the day, miners, working in factories, this is where they'll go after to catch some drinks and then head off. So it's a very weird, but very sort of specific sort of club that he starts off with. kids work in the factories? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, (laughs) I don't think it's that old. I, I think... I was trying to make a miners joke, but you really yeah. stepped all over it. I, I know. I stomped all over it. I, I stopped it right there because I saw it coming, <laughs> and I stomped on the miners just as Margaret fucking Thatcher did. Ooh. <laughs> that's for that's for my British you fans stomped, out there. You stomped on the miners just like Basil Collins did. Ah, that's for the American fans out there. Who's that now? <laughs> that's uh, we watched Harlan County, USA, with George a few weeks ago. Oh yeah, and that was a guy who was there to shut down the strike. And bring the scabs in as oh, the workers yeah. of the coal mine unionized. Oh, that's the thing. Oh, I, I wish I knew more and more about the whole sort of the you know coal mine strikes and all that stuff. But all I know is that Margaret Thatcher was a piece of shit. Just you just need to go past the surface of her. Like she did what now? Right. And then she sent how many people to Falklands again? That's another uh, Shane uh, Shane Meadows thing because that's a really sort of pivotal story in This Is England. Because that young kid's dad died in the Falklands, and that's like really pivotal in the whole thing because it's all that sort of skinhead culture. But all like his sort of understanding of the eighties, sort of how working class people got stomped on, and how that sort of became the breeding ground for a lot of the racial hatred, a lot of the segregation, you know, like a lot of bullshit that came out of it. I think he's yeah. got his finger right on the pulse, especially with this is England, which that's the thing as like a son of a, a Pakistani migrant it was a rough film to watch but it is a fucking important film this is england like he gets it exactly the tone the balance and the story that he has in this is england like shane meadows just blows it out of the park there yeah what what's the the bnp 
yeah, the, yeah, the BNP, British nationalist. Like you British can see, national party. They, I think that movie does such a wonderful job of showing how, like, a, a vulnerable teenager can get yeah. sucked into something like that. Absolutely, and um, just using the sort of the war and all that sort of bullshit as their sort of pivotal point to breed hatred. Like, like I said, like Shane Meadow gets it exactly spot on, and he and he handles it so deftly. Like, he could have done it as just a bog-sided hooligan movie and should have, you know, glorified the the things that were happening there. But he really, really understands the sort of the turmoil and the sort of strife that you see in, in especially in the north of, uh, of England. Yeah, um, from talking to my brother-in-law. And then just from listening again to Pilkington so much, that that life up in the the very north, living in the blocks, when you see these uh, housing complexes and they look like yeah. Soviet blocks, where it's just stacks upon stacks upon yeah. stacks of the exact same building, uh, you could see how easily it could get depressing. Combining that with the weather and then working conditions or whatever, um, it, you could see how tough of a life it could be. No, definitely. And it's thankfully that's something that I haven't experienced myself. Yes, there's different versions of ghettoization and all that stuff you want to call it. That that happens, but the actual tower blocks there I don't know what they're called now, but they used to be called council housing back in my day, the sort of council flats. Yeah, it is like that when you look at that and, and the thing is because England is so small and you even see it nowadays where you'll see a poor area or where there are what is perceived as, you know, not poor, but underfunded and under, you know, not getting any support areas, you travel no more than not even a couple of miles the other way. You get the rich and affluent areas. And yeah, that, that's things that's always boggled me, always messed uh, with my head. And again, it's like directors like Shane Meadows and these, you know, other people like him, you know, Paddy Constantine as well, who do, who do that brilliant work. In uncovering this, uh, I think Ken Loach. Yeah, Ken yeah. Loach? No, not Ken Loach. Uh, what's his name? I, Daniel Blake. Uh, which, I'm just going to... I, Daniel Blake, is it? I, I'm pretty sure it might be Ken Loach. That, yeah, Ken Loach, that's it. He, he's another one that the sort of social injustice, social sort of inequality, these guys get it spot on, for sure. Um, did he do the wind that shakes the barley with with Killian Murphy? He might have. Um, about because because that's another thing. Like Ken Loach just does like depressing yes, music yeah. for the most time. Uh, but I think he did do uh, a one that was I can't remember. It was about uh, a driving instructor, which was weirdly optimistic. Oh yes. Um. Oh God, what was that movie? I think that was him. I know what you're talking about. Um, uh, I think that was him, or I think it was, but I think it was also maybe the one about footballer Eric Cantona, which is also kind of positive, but also sort of sad. But yeah, yeah, I can't remember the name of it. The driving, well, was it? Was that one uh, looking for Eric? Is that the one? No, looking for Eric is about a guy who has an obsession with a, a footballer uh, for Manchester United. Oh, okay. uh, Eric Cantor, but I think that's also again. It's been a while since I've seen it, but it has that bittersweet moments mm -hmm. in it uh, as well. Uh, oh, what was that one called? Umar, have you looking. seen? That's Mike Lee. That's oh, Mike yes. Lee. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very, very similar kitchen sink kind of director. 
yeah, yeah, depressing dudes who do a good job at making depressing yes. movies. Um, connected to this movie, Patty Considine's directorial debut. It was a short film that he turned into a feature length. Is called Tyrannosaur, and oh. it stars Olivia Coleman and, and Peter Mullen from Session Nine. And it movie. is a rough, depressing movie, but excellent. Yeah, yeah, it is. A and and Peter Mullen is is a is a powerhouse. Just yeah. no other word to describe him. He is. Uh, trying to think of the other. Yeah, he, he's just a powerful actor, and like he just when when he wants you to feel something in his roles, you fucking feel it. He just it just goes right through you. Yeah, um, Peter Mullen just has that intensity switch that he can flick on, where all of a sudden it's like, this man is a vortex of, like, swirling dark energy, and it's all <laughs> behind his eyes. Yeah. And I get the same feeling in this bar scene as we come back to the movie, and mm. Richard's sitting there, and um, Herbie is in the bar, he walks in, and this is played by Stuart Wolfenden. I wanted to give him a shout-out, because I think he's probably my favorite performance or one of, amongst this group of mm -hmm. bad guys. Yeah. I think he's oddly delightful. Um, you can feel it, because uh, the kid says, oh, that's one of them. And Richard, you can feel all of a sudden this switch in Richard as he turns his shoulders and is staring at this this guy, and it feels primal, and you just feel it like this like swirling rage building in him. And when you finally get that line of like, are you looking at something new? If you, you, you cunt, or whatever. It's like, yeah. oh my god, holy shit, this is intense. Yeah, it, it, and that's the thing that when I first watched it, where like me and my brother just watching, oh, what sort of film is this? And just when like Richard goes, you cunt, because just says it under his breath, and like you can literally see like he, it's like he's gonna rise up, but he restrains himself, which is I've never seen that mm -hmm. before. Like it's a very weird thing, but it's also like I said. Before it's a very British thing that no one reacts to it, so whatever, like you know. But obviously, Herbie, it just it it goes through him because he's sort of you know like, what the fuck <laughs> just happened? It was it just needle drops right in there, like it just breaks the whole sort of uh, the setting in an instant. That's I love how I feel like once again in an American film, this would escalate into a fight immediately, like it would instantly become like this big thing. And here it's kind of allowed to simmer. And the way that Richard like attacked and, and disassembles this group, like their sanity basically little by little is so much more affecting than if they, if he just went in guns blazing right from the get go. Yeah. I, I do like that. These dealers are idiots <laughs> and not your typical badasses because the only things I think I see them selling are uh, acid and weed. There might be some amphetamines involved, but I'm not sure. But I, I psychedelic say, people who do a lot of psychedelics are usually not very quick to violence. I yeah. find, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, unless it's against you know Richard's brother. Which that's the thing. It's like, yeah, where did yeah? But but it also makes sense of why they would because they, they they are. Like the little have a go gangster wannabe, and it's just a sort of they want to exert that power and they pick obviously the weakest person they can find, and that just adds to the sorrow and the fucking misery this film 
adds to you. But yeah, it's it just is a brilliant introduction to like their like if you want an inciting incident, there you fucking go. That's after this. Oh, sorry, I was, I was going to say um, that Herbie goes to the gang hideout and does some gang shit. Like I love how everything is very. Uh, you find it out as it goes along. It doesn't like drop a whole bunch of exposition mm-hmm. all at once. You, you kind of get that he's doing this stuff. Uh, he he swaps some money for a bag, a little bag of drugs, apparently. And yeah. then as he's leaving, Richard stops him at the door and then intimidates Herbie by being super friendly. And I... <laughs> This is the scariest apology yes, I've ever so seen. And it's all, like you said, it's this swirling behind his eyes, just this barely contained. And you can tell, like, both of these men have violence in them, but no one's letting it out yet. It's so, it's yeah. so, I don't know, Patty Considine repeatedly in this movie does hardly anything, and it scares the shit out of me. Yeah. And, and I really think the, the reason for the interaction uh, between Hervey and Richard, I truly believe it was uh, Richard just sizing him up. And I think that that adds to his hatred in that he's like, how did this fucking weak worm man kill my brother? And, that, and he's sort of like, he's just seeing if he's going to do anything. Because that's the thing, it, I got a feeling that if, you know, it could have gone the other way. If that guy would have kicked off, pulled out a knife or whatever, Richard would just would have killed him, gone straight for the other guys. But then I think this leads into the next part where he's like, no, I'm going to fuck mm-hmm. with them because they're a bunch of fucking worms and they're just making me more angry. So after this, uh, Herbie goes back to his friend's flat. This is where we're introduced to Saws and Tough. Uh, Neil <laughs> Bell, uh, the guy yes. in the red, uh, I wanted to point out particularly as I think he's really funny in this movie. He looks so familiar. I've scanned his IMDb. I don't know what else I've seen him in, but he seems so familiar to me. Yeah, he just pops up in like a English uh, shows, dramas. He's just the guy in the background and always reliable as as that guy. <laughs> you know, oh, that's that guy from from yeah, yeah. There he is. Yeah, there he is again. That, that's that's the sort of uh, fellow he is. I figured it out. Do you remember the show Ideal, Johnny Vega show? when he's a dealer (laughs) he's the cop that yeah and he's the cop that hooks up johnny vegas with i think so he was on ideal so i i'm i think that might be him could be he's could be he's someone on ideal but that's where it must be where i know him from uh i loved that show it was so weird cartoon head the mouse (laughs) the guy who always has the paper mache mouse head on at all times and is the most dangerous gangster around i tell you something you know some Funny about Johnny Vegas. I'm pretty sure this is true, but I've heard before he got into comedy and acting because I fucking love Johnny Vegas. He's he just like a lovable, you know, like idiot. And he just and, and but in a, in a nice way. That's the character he plays because I also see him in like in paddle shows on like Nevermind the Buzzcocks, which is like a musical uh, music based game show in uh, England. And uh, I really recommend uh, worth checking out because I don't think they do it anymore. But Johnny Vegas was going to be a priest. Before he became a stand-up comedian, I shit you not. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, Johnny Vegas, Father Vegas, or whatever his real name is. <laughs> Father. Vegas. 
I mean, just the fact that he chose his stage name to be Johnny Vegas (laughs) tells you a lot about, like, the character he's going for, you know? Yeah, oh, there it is. At age 11, he attended St. Joseph's College in Up Holland, a Catholic boarding school, to train for the priesthood, but came back homesick after four terms, which is the most Johnny's Vegas thing ever. No, I can't be asked. I'm going back home. (laughs) (laughs) This is the scene. We get the two dudes just hanging out, reading porn back and forth to each other. It's uh, Herbie walks in to give him a recount of the story, and he said, Omar, I, I, there's some great Englishisms in this yeah, one. Yeah, I'll translate. And he I'll walks translate. in and he goes, "So there's this guy, right? He's having a bit of butcher, having a bit of a butcher's with me. That means he's looking at him like, like a stare, like you're having a butcher's. Um, that's not quite Cockney slang, but it's just." What we say, you know, let's have a butcher's, let's have a look. But it can also mean in this term, in this case, having a butcher's, like a stare down, like he's staring me down. Or or, or if you were in uh, Always Sunny fan, an ocular pat down, you know, like Mac does or whatever. But he's, <laughs> ocular pat yeah, down, so, yes. So like, that, that's the sort of vibe he was going for. Anything else uh, that needs translation? Uh, we'll get to it. If I, I'll let you know <laughs> if I spot any just weird things about England that confuse This me. is yeah, no the most stoner apartment ever. The, yeah. Like these guys have a weed blanket. Uh, there's weed posters. There's a a doorway curtain, it, but it's not made out of beads. It's made out of pot leaves. I'm like, I thought bead doorways were the coolest things in the world when <laughs> yes. I was a kid. Like, I wanted a beaded doorway so bad as a kid. And then I think I experienced one or, or went to a store that had one. I was like, okay, you do this twice and you're sick of it. And all you hear is the little it's rattling like sound. Yeah, it's, and it also, like, because it's, it's a bead and it's cold. And, you like, when you have the door, you open it and you walk through it. But with the B, you're like, oh, what the fuck? Get, get off me. Get off me. After a while, you're like, no, no. Uh, so, Herbie realizes during this recounting of the story that it's Anthony's brother. And this is at this point where we get another flashback where we see now all the guys are partying. Anthony is at the party with them and they are making him drink and smoke weed. Uh, how, much did, how much do you hate this footage? Like, it just gives me... I think it's, it's purpose. It's purposefully it's really, to yeah. you. It's really, really upsetting. Um, I, I like the music choice and the black and mm-hmm. white choice. Mm-hmm. Um, the grain effect is a little strange. It's it's like a digital After Effects, yeah, artifacting that they're putting on it. Um, but every time, every time this movie flashes back to black and white, I feel slight dread yeah you sort of clench up yep that's yes. exactly doomed dread is what i is what i wrote in my notes so back at the abandoned shack richard and anthony are hanging out richard said he needs to go into town but anthony doesn't have to back at the drug apartment <laughs> a guy does a line of blow <laughs> and then his friend is like where do, where do you think that's from where do you think maybe Maybe an Italian or something. <laughs> Gave a line of Parmesan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This part genuinely made me laugh. So this, you know, this would be the funniest, the most uplifting part of this entire movie is a guy snorting Parmesan. <laughs> yeah. 
like I said, it's this whole film is just one walking juxtaposition. It just it has this moment, and then it just dreaded and just chaos. It and and I, and this uh, dialogue and the set. And I think is I don't think it's a set. I think they just like they went to someone who is a local. Oh, oh, oh no! Shit. Oh no! Shit. Rich is here. Oh my god! I I uh I have the map. <laughs> Oh no shit. <laughs> I I I went through a bit of a gas mask collecting phase about twelve years ago after I saw this movie. And oh, I just I like the you. aesthetics of gas masks and uh Ugh, I just happened to get out my Halloween decorations yesterday and so I had the box with this out and I thought, oh what a fun fun yeah, coincidence. Oh fun. Absolutely. That did not make me feel horrified <laughs> at all. John, that was Perfectly normal wearing. Oh god! Don't you love doing visual gags for podcasts? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, hold on. I think I took a screen grab of that. As soon as I saw it, I was like, "I'm not taking a screenshot. I'm taking a screenshot. <laughs> I'm not going to let this slide." <laughs> so yeah, Red, they're all hanging out. Herbie goes to take off. Uh, he leaves his drugs on the table as he's going out the front door. Who should be out there but Richard? In uh, full-on rubber tight to his head, Russian gas mask, and the way he slams on the glass oh. door. Oh, oh it, as I punch my microphone, <laughs> <laughs> it's terrifying because he looks again. It's just like the rage that you feel through Potty Constantine's body language. I'm pretty sure uh, before we, or even after we watch it, or whenever they promote. Dead man shoes in not quite trailers, but they are like um, vignettes mm -hmm. or whatever you know, you know, like adverts we call them, you know, you know, like quick ads on the telly or on film four. They always have that clip included, the bang, because it's so snappy and it's similar to the you know when it goes what you're looking at in the pub that it's it's done in a weird way because you get people who smash windows or you know who, who like try to intimidate people, but how Paddy does it, how Richard does it. It's his own sort of way, and it's really interesting. So, oh yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I, I just chatted. Oh, I just saw the. <laughs> yeah, I told you I'm gonna I'm gonna document this for this audio <laughs> medium. We need some sort of visual image. <laughs> I like it. Soon we can start a Patreon and charge like a hundred bucks a month for it. Yeah, and that's that's the only bonus you get. It's just screenshots. That's what we need more Patreons. <laughs> it'll do, it'll, uh, and kickstarters so, right umar yes kickstarters patreons and all that stuff we need that money from somewhere i'm i'm in this guy let's go let's monetize so, everything <laughs> herbie runs back in to tell his friends that there's some kind of monster out there because i think herbie's <laughs> tripping at this point so he's on acid i believe and there's like an elephant. It has giant eyes. It looks like an elephant out there. A fucking elephant. <laughs> and then just how they respond to it. Are they like, yeah. So I, I love, they arm themselves. One guy has a hatchet. The other guy has a frying pan. And now they go out the door running after him. And the three of them standing outside all fucked up, just yelling in front of their apartment flat. Is both hilarious, but I imagine being their neighbors and just being like, oh my, these idiots are out there yelling again. Yeah. Fuck. Uh, they go back inside, and we see that Richard has broken in through the window, 
Umar, translation time. Go on. Chain stoking? What's that? Shane Stokey, C-H-E-Y-N-E. Give us a sentence, because I feel like he spray painted it on the wall. So I had to look this up. It's not English slang. It's a medical term. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's just like a surgical thing in it, if I remember. What was it? So Cheyenne Stokes is a, it's an abnormal breathing pattern that you go into right before you die often ah death death rattle. yes that's it so yeah, yeah that's, oh. that's why that's why I, yeah whenever i forgot I've what heard it that. meant but yeah it was just yeah i wish it was an english thing but no it's uh it's just foreboding of what the fuck he's gonna do to him which in any other film would be extremely badass but in this total down and depressing movie i kind of feel bad for the bastards which is weird it's weird that this film does mm-hmm. it to you that you kind of feel bad for these monsters and you also feel bad that they turned him into the monster but it's also it's just such a weird complicated movie <laughs> I, yeah i think when these three guys are alone together you get the feeling that they're just fuck-ups who want to get fucked up mm. and it's not until that they bring in the some of the older guys in sunny who are yeah. kind of the really malicious people and these guys are so weak that they just get stepped right over and dragged along. Well, I think... But I also love it how they... Sorry, sorry, John. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, I also love how they handle uh, Sonny and uh, the big John or whatever they call the other two guys in that even though they are the, you know, the top level of their criminal organization, they are so fucking incompetent. It, 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 <laughs> this film, I would categorize it at some moments as a black comedy. Yeah, which there's, is so there's definite moments of. of it. I yeah. mean, the fact that they're driving around in that car, yeah. you have like six men <laughs> piled in this little, what is it, a green, is it's it a, a bug? I think it's a, I think it's a two CV, uh, mm-hmm. Citroen, I think. Uh, Citroen, look, yeah, like we don't have those Citroen. here. All right. Citroen, Citroen never made its way to the United States, so ain't that's... Ain't uh, a, a Citroen the car that Colombo had? Like he had an old, no, he had a Peugeot. Yeah, Sorry, Peugeot, yeah, 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 they're the French guys. Well, yeah. We don't have Peugeots here either. I mean, if if Colombo had one, that must have been a rare In, like, car. Import. Yeah. I think it was an import, and yeah. Yeah. To, okay, I'm done. I had to bring up Colombo in this podcast. I'm done, guys. I'm <laughs> done now. Bye. It's all right. Now Justin will listen to this episode. <laughs> uh, we get Richard. He's following two extremely drunk men. These guys aren't just like couple pints out at the bar these guys are like they're both made of liquid falling over each other just trying to make it to their front door (laughs) and richard's just standing there with the mask on watching them from like the bushes so this room this makes me think that sorry it just makes me think that uh, shane uh, meadows would be really good at doing uh, a slasher this reminds me a lot of have you seen ghost dog yeah uh jim yeah jim garmish um, yeah, yeah. No, very. Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, Forrest Whitaker as a samurai uh, <laughs> gangster assassin. Yes, Excuse it's me? great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so much fun. Uh, but in the same kind of way, like where you see you meet all these gangsters and you see them falling down drunk, or you see them like with their families and shit. Like, you know, none of these guys are. They're not even the Sopranos. They're like, like you said, they're fuck ups. They're even, I think, the higher level uh, 
as we see later with Sonny, they're all kind of ridiculous and pathetic. One of my favorite parts in Ghost Dog was, uh, again, it's been a while since I've seen it, but towards the end, not giving a spoiler here, but one of the gangsters you meet, and he's a really old gangster who's in his home, and I think he's getting ready for bed or something mm-hmm. like that, and he just starts singing straight up like gangster rap <laughs> to himself. <laughs> and it's really weird, but really, like again, black comedy, and it's so funny at the same time. It is. It, so we see that... I was going to say, it's totally how these guys envision themselves. Um, yeah. <laughs> and these two guys, uh, Al and John, are passed out inside with delivery pizza boxes on both of their chests. (laughs) I've been really fucked up, but I've never fallen asleep with food, like, on me or in my hand. Never gotten to that level of (laughs) fucked up. Never. And I think what makes it funny as well is that because they're, like, barrel-chested big, big guys, (laughs) that they're so much like tables. Uh He just uses his belly as like a serving platter that the <laughs> yeah. box rests upon. <laughs> I think the the fact that this movie, um, a lot of it wasn't scripted. A lot of it was improvised. Uh, they had to change a lot because they shot it over three weeks on a super low budget. Um, and if you look at it from that standpoint, a lot of these decisions you see, it literally like in the moment they were like, uh, yeah, I don't know. They passed out eating pizza. Kind of a choice, because <laughs> how do we communicate that? Put pizza boxes on them. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do. Uh, we see Richard is now standing inside their place, and oh. Umar, like you said, this is like a slasher moment, because we see Richard with that he's wearing essentially like a, the uh, Michael Myers... Jacket. It feels like the micro, Michael Myers blue um, jumpsuit. Where it's oh, yeah, that yeah, green yeah. jacket, but it feels iconic because it's just this base color. And then that combined with the, the coloring of the gas mask just gives Richard in this scene just that, that, that shape vibe. And he's standing there with a hammer in his hand looking at these two men. And it, it genuinely, I'm not scared, but like I, I feel the tension of this moment like, is this guy going to crush... Yeah, both of their skulls. Um, or what? What direction is this movie gonna go mm-hmm. right now? It, it's it's at that moment when you realize, wait, what rating is this movie? Oh, it's eighteen, or you know, like M or whatever it is in America. You're like, oh, oh, some shit's gonna happen. And and also, what? Well, because the thing is, when I watch this film, I never idolize Richard. You're not meant to idolize because it sort of reminds me of you know that starter pack of if you idolize them, you miss the point where you have. Walter White, Tyler Durden, Scarface, you know, Tony Montana, all these sort of like, you're meant to appreciate it as a film, but if you start saying, oh yeah, I'm going to live my life like Tony Montana, no, 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 you need to watch that film again. You missed the fucking point. And it's the same with this, where what he does is really interesting, and in in a lesser movie, it will glorify it, and it will make it like, oh yeah, Rich is such a badass, killing people, and, and it's so cool. But even at this, like you said, it doesn't scare you. You don't feel like something's going to, like, oh, it's exciting. It's just like this weird dread, this weird sort of, I have no idea what's going to happen next, and I know you guys are going to cover what's going <laughs> to happen next. But it leans back into the sort of juxtaposition 
of I did not expect what happened next in the movie no. at all. The, I, I, thought, I thought this movie was going to go off the rails into blood and gore. And then we see Richard pull out a spray paint can. And we cut to day two. And uh, <laughs> we, we, you know, they, the guys go to Sonny's house. And he, we see Sonny has complete clown makeup on his face. And uh, oh, wow. Richard uh, is back with Anthony now. And he gives him a speech about why do people give drugs to kids? Because they can control their minds. Because those people are weak themselves. And um, it, this movie, um, as you were saying before about um, this is England and the vulnerability of children. Mm. and being sucked into terrible situations or terrible groups of people, these weak people, these, these, um, you know, predatory people who are out yeah. there just to drag others down with them. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really <laughs> sad. Getting it hey. in between the box. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, we've got a new guest on. You, you bring him a mic or someone else here? I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Excuse me, one second. Hey! <laughs> hey! Oh, no. Norm normally it's my dog. If he dog. comes back with another gas mask, I'm going to lose my fucking mind. He said he's got a gas mask collection, is the thing. That's what yeah. he said. I wanted to come back with like a, like a kabuki mask one. Imagine what that would look so like. So the uh, the one he has, it always also reminds me of. All right, sorry about that. Someone walking their dog. It by. reminds me of the look of uh, Sandman, the oh, that yeah. mask that he has, like with the long tube on it. Mm. And it, like yeah, like a Russian. It's like a very specific sort of gas mm -hmm. mask. Well, we were just going to say if he came back with a gas mask, we would have just lost our fucking mind. They're like you planned the whole thing of the dog barking just so you can get another gas mask. <laughs> I do have a few others, but none of them are nearly as scary as this one. They chose a really good gas mask because it's the scariest looking one you can uh, you can have. Uh, I have to say, any gas mask, pretty scary. It's yeah. the eyes. That's why I aesthetically I like them because, as Herbie says. Big eyes. It just it changes the complexion of the face entirely and makes it terrifying, isn't it? It's the yeah. same, uh, very similar style to what uh, the Doctor Who, um, episodes with the empty child, the, the World War Two yeah. one, whatever it was. I mean, yeah. except for they kind of they opaque out the eyes, I think, or um, maybe they mirror them or something. But yeah. Uh, oh, I've never seen that one. That's the one that everyone always says is like the scariest. One that messed them up as it's kids. It's definitely off-putting. Uh, so, we're going back to Sonny's house, and Saws and Tuff tell her, we'll be like, do not mention the elephant thing. Please don't do it. <laughs> and so, of course, uh, Sonny flips out when Herbie mentions that there is an elephant outside. So, uh, Sonny says, I think I know who it was. I think that was in the bar. And the guy walks in. He called me a cunt. And when he says that, Sonny just kind of shrugs of like, yeah, kind yeah. of more. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He's a very astute fella who called you that, yeah. Yeah, yeah he got you pegged, didn't he? <laughs> uh, yeah, Herbie says that it's, it's Anthony's brother. We have another flashback. 
this is where stuff really starts to get bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, Sonny tells Anthony that his brother left because of his mental disability, threatens to sexually assault him, punches him in the face. Uh, really, really fucked up, dark stuff, and it just keeps getting worse and worse every time we flash back. This enough that would have been just horrible. <laughs> yes. Yes, but it keeps descending. Yeah. Um, to lighten things up a little bit, we get the two drunk guys who had the pizza boxes. They show up, and the fact that the one old man is wearing a beanie so low that it's over his eyebrows just really cracks me up because it's like an old man trying to look uh-huh. gangster. <laughs> it's just like a really funny image. Yeah, I like the fact that so Richard, uh, when he was in there in the house, dyed the one man's hair also clown colors, and spray-painted on the back of the other guy's jacket. He spray-paints a big target and the word knob across the bottom. And the guy wears the jacket! (laughs) For the rest of the movie, he's walking around town with this jacket on! What are you doing? I think that's his only jacket. (laughs) Looks like crime doesn't pay. It did seem like it was like, this guy spent all of his money on one nice suit, and so he's gonna wear that suit Every single day. Well, he spent all the money on pizza and beer. Yeah, he complains. He's on that one night bender. He says something about like it's a five five hundred pound jacket. <laughs> You're like, on what planet? Yeah. Like that that was the shit. If that's five hundred pounds, you got ripped off, mate. Sorry. Uh, in another flashback, we see Sonny. He forces a woman to have sex with kid. Mm. Um, yeah, which is really awful uh after this we get an excellent scene probably my favorite scene where they they're driving around in that little car and richard and i'm sorry guys i'm blanking on the kid's name anthony thank you richard and anthony are standing out on the street and you can tell that richard's just waiting to be seen he's waiting to be found standing in the rain and something about patty considine's hair in this scene how it's just short enough to be spiky when it gets all wet he has like anime spikes of hair everywhere. <laughs> he just and the, the fact that he's standing just in the rain, not getting any coverage or anything, just makes him all the more intense. You know, this is when he has he, a military jacket as well, isn't it? The yep. sort of yes. dark green. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that's like his look, which kind of reminds me again. Like when when I mentioned, like these are if you're watching the film and these are the characters you idolize, then you got you then you missed the point. Tyler, uh, what's his name? Travis Bickle. Yes. He's very Travis yep. Bickley. That's and this scene is one of these where he he does hardly anything. Sonny comes up to him. Yes, Sonny comes up to him to like threaten him to back off, and Richard just stands there and stares at him. And the way Patty Considine is just so incredibly intimidating, and I don't know why he's shorter than Sonny. He. He looks less physically fit than Sonny, but it looks like he would just tear your throat out without thinking about it. It's the the line, it's beyond fucking words, mate. When he says that, and he's just like, you need to run. You need to get out of town and run now, because this is, there are no words for what's Uh about to happen. Like You just feel... I, I'm surprised there's not steam <laughs> as this man is like <laughs> boiling and smoldering that he's just it's so intense and then he does that thing with his palm 
and he just puts them in it you're fucking here mate it's jeez yeah. man holy shit like i think uh paddy went it all is from the same ilk as uh the Robert Carlyle Begsby mm. sort of character mm-hmm. because Begsby in Trainspotting similar like, obviously not exactly like Begsby because Begsby goes to 100 yeah. very quickly but even before I watched Trainspotting everyone used to tell me oh Begsby this Begsby that and then when I watched him oh yeah yeah he steals the fucking show and that's what Paddy does as well like even though he's like he's a shortest more than Sonny but what I think it is when Sonny walks up and tries to step up to Richard he doesn't fucking move. And that is just scary. If you're in a situation and like you walk up to someone and just, even if you're just talking to him and you walk up to someone, usually they take a step back to give you space. But if they're just there, it mentally, you're like, oh shit, what do I do now? And that's what Sonny's like. He's like, yeah, I think I should run. <laughs> Sonny has a realization, I think, where after he steps up, Richard kind of does like a face. Yeah. And yeah. Sonny's like, you're not afraid of me, are you? No. And Richard's like, no. And <laughs> I think Sonny, the table completely flips in this conversation in such like a wonderful way where you see one man get completely emasculated as he realizes that he's going up against something that is completely out of his hands, you know? Well, yeah. and it's in the next scene, we see the gang sitting around um, at their club, it looks like, figuring out what they're supposed to do about Richard and... Sonny insists killing him. Everyone else is hesitant to do this. And I love this beat. Mm-hmm. Like, taking a life is still a big deal to these guys. They are such small-time gangsters that it really is. Like, they, they deal a little pot and a little acid, and that's about it. They're not like these, these gangsters that they kind of pretend to be, because everyone gets sick at the thought of having to take a life. Yeah, and it's again, again just going to like, and 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 this is the sort of thing that the film unpacks, which is really one of its strengths, but it also is fucking horrible when you think of it. Is the reason what they did to Anthony and why they it didn't impact him because these fucking monsters just thought him as a pet or as a little thing to play mm-hmm. with. That's why the horrific shit and the ultimately worst stuff that they did to him doesn't really affect him because they're like oh it's just it's just, it's just anthony it's just you know obviously they would have called him the r word and all that stuff because i think they did in the film yeah it? just and they were also like not only physically abuse him but mentally abuse him and just they, they think he's below human but on the flip side when they see a threat a, a viable threat something that's going to kill him back it, they shit in their pants and they literally are just like quaking in their boots or don't know what to do with him and i think the idea that um these guys have justified themselves to some degree. As we see, the the difference between um, the the first several and then Mark at the end, who seems to have taken in what he actually has done and feel remorse about it, as opposed to everybody else who they're like, oh, well, Anthony did it to himself. You know, they all justify the ultimate action. Um, they kind of get rid of their own their own part in it. They don't own their blame, whereas Mark does. And you see that these guys are totally irresponsible to the point that they don't take up anything in their own lives. Even Like they don't hold anything. They're all, you know, like 
like Sean said, they're they're fuck ups who like to get fucked up. That's the extent of these mm. of most of these guys. After this, uh, this meeting where they decide to kill Richard, one of the guys goes off. It's the guy who's wearing the suit, and he goes off by himself, and he's gone for a minute. Herbie goes upstairs, and suddenly we hear screaming, and we find that Richard has killed the dude with the jacket, and in blood written one down on the wall. Yeah. Fuck. All right, where it's is started Sean now. Med- it's... Where is Sean Meadows' slasher? Where is his fucking slasher? <laughs> it has begun. From this point on, basically. Um, one of my favorite songs starts to play. This is a song called Adam, or by Adam, called Statued. Mm. And we get the Day 3 title card. Um, I love this song because I've never quite heard something like it. He's bouncing something off of a guitar string, mm-hmm. I think, to get that... And it's it's a really strange thing that I've I've tried to replicate on my own guitar. And never quite figured out what he's doing there, but I really dig it. The I love the contrast of what we're seeing and what we're hearing with the intent of these men. Because this little ridiculous car, this CV2 that they're driving around in, um, and these men with murder on their minds. Like, they're going, they're driving through this pastoral landscape to this farm to try to kill this man to try to go get Richard try to lure him out and shoot him with a sniper rifle and then you get this gently lilting folk music over the top of it that is just like it fits the setting but these guys are uh, anomalous to to what's happening the final lyric in this song that plays is let this be a moment that you won't forget all your life until you die. And then that's that's the final thing before they park the car uh, outside the farmhouse and get oh, out. So yeah. it's I don't know how on this tiny little budget and with all the constraints they had, he was able to get all of these choices to line up so perfectly. The lyrics in uh, almost all the songs, I feel like, comment on the action in just a really beautiful way. I, I've got a feeling that Obviously, like uh, Shane Meadows with backing from film for, even though I think, if I remember correctly, the budget was obviously not in the millions, but a couple of hundred thousand. Like it was a small mm-hmm. budget, but it wasn't like a you know Sam Raimi doing Evil Dead for like twenty quid, right. basically, or something About like that. Seven hundred thousand pounds. Yeah, which is a reasonable budget because obviously he's filming in the north and it's everything's cheaper in comparison to his filming down south in like London or in a cityscape where obviously there'd be a lot more stuff. And it's a lot of rural areas that he's filming in. And I think what he's probably did is the reason, because even though Smog, Smog uh, you know, Bill Callahan and Bonnie Prince Billy, which has an amazing, he, we'll talk about it later on, but I fucking love that montage. Uh, uh, King for it? Was it? A, a, a King at Night. King at Night, that's the song. Um, I, I think for the other people, I think he just had sort of connections and sort of worked out deals. So that, that's the way I think he did it, where like he just straight up told them, yeah, if you want royalties or if you want like money up front, I ain't going to have it, but here's, here's a script, here's a story, and we know each other. Can I use your music? Because that's the only way it could have been done. Yeah. I mean, Smog, Calexico, um, Aphex Twin, M. Ward, mm. uh, Adam, like 
all of these. It's it's a killer soundtrack for what for what it is. <laughs> we'll get that Aphex track, that Aphex Twin track. They they play a real short version of it, but that minimalist piano piece at the end is stunningly beautiful. And how talented Aphex Twin! I can't think of the guy's name right now. That guy's talent is so immense that it's it's upsetting that he can do ambient music he can do this insane acid trip music he can do beautiful swelling strings it's like whatever he seems like he wants to do he Mm -hmm. can do it he can also scare me shitless with window liquor i watched that as a kid (laughs) fucking fucking oh or was it that or was it come to daddy there's come to daddy but there's also window liquor where there's basically i know it's the apex twin mascot or whatever it is but i always just thought that was richard branson <laughs> it looked like richard branson it probably is richard branson but yeah that 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 freaked me the fuck out but yeah also come to daddy so yeah i like his music but he's also a bastard for scaring me as a kid so yeah uh the bad guys are at the farm they send alan with a handful of money to walk over but this is a, divi- a diversion as Sonny has a rifle with the scope on it, and he's setting up through the roof of the car. Uh, Alan approaches the farmhouse, and Richard, again in like a slasher moment, pops out from behind the doorway with an axe in hand, and just walking up on Alan. Scary. Terrifying. <laughs> yeah. And, and that ineptness really comes in here, where, again, it... It kind of reminds you of uh, that scene in Blue Ruin of when, when he gets the guy out of the boot and he's like, he, he's six feet away and he still manages to fuck up the shot and it's not until that guy from um, uh, Home Alone... What's Home his name? Alone. Yeah. Do you know how Josh blew my mind when he told me that guy was in Home Alone? <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so, so yeah, it, it takes him to save his ass with the sniper shot, which I, I still stand by is probably one of the best kills I've ever seen. Uh, yes, on, I, on... I'm right there with you. Yeah, and but but it has that same sort of vibe of like, wait, you guys planned for this and you didn't think of this as a contingency, but I still buy it because of the last half an hour of me seeing them acting as complete fuck ups. So I'm like, of course they'll <laughs> shoot Alan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why wouldn't they? So, R- Richard walks up on Alan, makes a move forward. And Sonny fires a shot which domes Alan right, like a bullseye right in the back of the head. <laughs> the guy in the red is freaking out as they, they, they're trying to peel away. The car won't start. And this is, again, that black comedy moment yeah. that's a little bit of levity. They're freaking out now because they clearly seem to, they seem to have only brought one bullet. So now yeah. there's Michael Myers with an, an axe walking towards your car as it won't start, and they're all freaking out like they're final girls in a horror movie. That's one of my most iconic shots of this film. That, you know, that there's a handful of, you know, <laughs> the elephant, Richard as the elephant smacking the window, um, you know, just walking in the fields and and all this stuff, but it's just with Richard with his axe, with the sort of t-shirt, you know, thin shirt he has, with his arms outstretched mm-hmm. in defiance just, and yeah. like, that is unnerving to say the least, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, Shane Meadows needs to make a fucking horror again, or a slasher because if he did this with 700,000, like fuck, I want him to do a Jason movie. Richard seems amused 
by what just happened like (laughs) that's that that's was your plan that's what you're going to bring to my doorstep that's how you're gonna get me (laughs) it's in that moment richard just i feel like his ego just shoots up we're like oh i'm gonna fucking kill all these dudes yeah. I, I, I think it's also with that richard just like you know when at the when he goes to herbie and he goes to apologize and and i really do think he was sizing him up and i think right here as well even though he's like oh these guys are a joke in the back of his head he's like yeah but these jokes of gang so these guys did such horrific things to me and i this is just feeding my anger because if they, he, he, I think he would have respected it more, or he would have appreciated it more if they were professionals, or if they knew what they were doing, because it'd be like a challenge, and he'd be like, "Okay, I gotta bring my A game." But I think he's infuriated, or he's gone even more insane by these fuckers, these clowns, or or my adversaries. What the fuck is going on with the world? That's how I think his brain is just, and he's all he can do is just laugh at him. Because nothing else he can that's do. That's interesting. I don't. I don't know if I've picked up on, but I think you're absolutely right. Their ineptitude must anger him. Yeah, because he's a, he's a soldier. You, he's... And, and you want you want evil to be you want evil to be self aware, and you want evil to have like a purpose and motivation. But when you find that evil is just stupidity, yeah, uh, it, it must it just must be so disappointing that these are your adversaries. These are the villains in this story. Are these just common pieces of trash? Exactly. And this is why, again, if this film was given to a lesser director, a lesser cast, you wouldn't get that nuance. You wouldn't get that sort of ineptitude driving Richard further. It would just be like, oh, yeah, of course they're evil badass because evil is a thing. And no, evil can't be incompetent because I think that's what makes it more scarier where evil is. Is it exists, but not for a grand scheme of being evil. It's there because they don't know what they're doing, and hence the actions they are doing are evil, but they don't know why they're doing these evil actions, and it just ends up, oh, yeah, we just sort of stumbled into it. And you're like, wait, you are doing these heinous crimes, you're doing these evil crimes, but you have no reason for this, you don't know why, you just, like, and you don't know how to <laughs> act how you're meant to act, because evil is meant to be arching and overarching, and and grand and all that stuff, but these guys are total opposite, which just feeds to his anger. I think the I love the next little bit where uh, it cuts to them at the gas station, and Tuff is under the hood of the car, and like the car's just fucked. Like he burnt out the gearbox trying to get away from Richard, and now these guys are stranded in the middle of the countryside because of their car broke down, their shitty car (laughs) broke down. And there's a shot. um, It's like the second or third shot of the sequence where it's got Sonny and two of the other men or two or three of the other men. And the way they're lined up, it looks like a tableau. Like they're all sitting there reflecting on what they've done and on what's happened. And the fact that Sonny screwed up his shot and killed his own man, perhaps predictably. And, they're all like he's their leader. He's supposed to be the best of them, and he's still a, a fucking idiot. Yeah, yeah. Blue jumpsuit tough is freaking out. Says, "Why the hell would we go back to town? I'm walking away." He tries to get someone to follow him. Nobody will follow him. Uh, back with Richard and Anthony, they have a 
brief scene reminiscing about childhood and some kid that would always pull his pants down on the soccer pitch. I, I think that's that's a metaphor. I think showing your arse doesn't actually mean to show your ass. Yeah. That, but what was the context makes... again? Remind me. Remind me. What's the context? Whenever he would get uh... the past the ball, he would show his ass. Oh yeah, that that that's uh, ooh, that one. I think is not. Yeah, I don't think it's flashing, but I think it's like speeding, like running past, like you know, showing your ass that way. I'll be honest, that one. It's one that I kind of understood, but I won't be able to pinpoint whether it was pantsing someone or if it was just running really quick. Well, because in my mind, I was picturing a kid whose shorts were far too big for him. And every time he got a pass, he would try to take off, and they just immediately bloop down his ass. I say, either way it works. Either way it works. So the three bad guys who did not go back with Tough, they're walking back towards town. This is where we get a nice song by Clay Hill. They get home. I love. They decide to arm themselves. So they get. Uh, Red guy has a sword, like a samurai sword. Sunny has a tiny crossbow, and Herbie gets like a three-inch blade knife. And these three guys sitting around holding these weapons, and then the fact that they won't leave each other's side. So after this, we see them walking around, and they're in the toilet together as Sunny's taking a bath and. One guy's taking a dump. Uh, but during this time, as they're walking around upstairs looking for Richard, we see that he's in the mask, and he's actually in the kitchen. And all of the drugs that he stole earlier, uh, he pours all of the drugs into their kettle. Is this, uh, has this scene happened when... I always love this line, when Richard says uh, to his brother, uh, what you go, he says, what are you going to do with that? He goes, I'm going to take him super duper fucking high. Yeah. That's happening, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna send them to the moon, mate. Yeah, the kind, the kind that, that you, the kind of trip that you don't come back from, or something like that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. yeah this part, this next scene, really <laughs> terrifies got, me. I, I want to uh, go back real quick. You, you yes, very please. quickly went past the scene where Sonny is in the tub, Saws is on the toilet. It, yes. He's still holding his samurai sword. While he's using the toilet, while another man is in the tub mere inches away from him. This is utterly insane. These guys have lost their mind. I, I thought I thought this might just be a cultural English thing that oh, yeah, guys we, we do have, together yeah, until I realized, yeah. like, oh, it's because they're all terrified. But yeah. first I was like, maybe it's just Northern English. They're, they're that close with their mates that they just do everything together. <laughs> Yeah, we take a shit while someone else on the... Yeah, and we also have our samurai <laughs> swords with us. And you know what the funny thing is? That sword is something that, uh, again, it might be in the States as well, but it obviously it won't be a real samurai sword. It'd be something that, no word of a lie, back then he probably would have bought at a newsagent's. I, I shit you not, they, they were available at BB guns and shitty, shitty samurai swords for £15. That's what I, I picture in my head that Sonny, a few years ago when he's with his mates, he got that because obviously eBay was it a right. thing back then or anything like that. He just got it from a newsagent, and that is the shittest sword you'll ever hold because obviously you won't get a real samurai sword. And I just love that that's the arsenal of weapons they have, but that is, yeah, fundamentally. For me, they, they all look <laughs> if, like they came from. If you, if you tried to stab someone with that sword, it would snap in half. It would, oh, yeah. yeah. Like, you know how you have like a 30 fold katana that's made in that? That'll be barely half a fold. Yeah. 
That would be like glorified <laughs> tinfoil that he's got. They all look like they came from the like the flea market, like the yeah. the roadside stand uh, kind of thing. Yeah. That little blade that the other guy has in the the pistol crossbow that looks like um, the thing you shoot at flies with. <laughs> it looks like you could take out maybe a yeah. squirrel with it. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I bet you anything, I bet you anything, back in 2004, he got it all from like a dodgy newsagent guy who had this in the uh -huh. back, like, or like, you know, like in a dodgy shop, like, oh yeah, yeah, here you go, uh, tenor, it's yours. <laughs> so, the, the three boys decide that it's time to have a cup of tea. So they fill up the kettle that has all the drugs in it, they all drink it. They start tweaking out, which makes me think maybe there's some amphetamines involved yeah. in this as well, because when they're tweaking, they're all cleaning the kitchen together. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the part that I love more than in the toilet, when they're all in the dish. And, just... <laughs> and Herbie is just wiping a cutting board, and you just see him with a towel, just like rubbing soapy water around on this thing, looking at it. And he keeps holding it up and like admiring it, and then... Starts wiping it again, and then, yeah, he's definitely tripping balls at that point. Uh, uh, they're lifting weights. The guy in the red is lifting weights with his right hand. He has a samurai sword in his left hand and a cigarette in his mouth. <laughs> this part is so chaotic and so frenetic. These three guys, as they're going from, like, tweaking, tripping on amphetamines to then the acid starts kicking in. Yeah. Them all... In the here, this part's hilarious until Richard shows up, and then it's no longer funny. No, because let me tell you, as a psychedelic user, you really want to make sure that like you're set and you're setting your mindset is good, and then you're setting where you're at, the people around you is good. To have this man overdose you and then like fuck with you and tell you he's the devil, and then all these things, it, it, it's hauntingly scary of, even if he doesn't kill these men at this point, there's a good chance that he's doing irreparable psychological damage by yeah. fucking with them like this. Yeah, he was going to send them to the fucking moon. I think they're going to Pluto mm -hmm. by now. <laughs> these dudes are gone. Uh, I love... One guy tries to touch Richard's face, and he don't <laughs> fucking touch me. And it's just like this intense moment. Red guy clearly does not understand anything. Herbie seems to be the only one kind of maybe comprehending that something is going on here. But Red guy is so fucking dazed. Um, he's, he's pressed up against who goes the wall. For, oh, does he, he, he gets Sonny first, yeah, right? just bang. So yeah, drags Sonny. I thought he's just going to choke him out with that plastic bag. No. But he puts a plastic bag on Sonny's head, shoots him in the head, lines up the red guy, tells him to stand right there, and, like, don't move. And what does he say? I'm gonna send you off, yeah. or something? Yeah. Oh, this part. And then This part might bang. have grossed me out more than anything else in this movie. Um, he, gets, he does the Cameron Poe from Con Air. Yeah. The bang. palm through the nose, into the brain, and... The immediacy of this guy's death is it, it's kind of in that blue ruin feel of like the violence is so visceral in this yeah. part that it, it's shocking. That's, I would love to get to make a movie where like I made slasher movies 
And so all the violence is like cartoony and over the top all the time. I would love to make a movie where every single bit of violence hurts like this does. Everything, Mm. every stab, like you feel it and you wince, especially because your loyalties really are torn because he's tormenting these guys and he's doing it on purpose. They, they were Mm. idiots and assholes when they were tormenting Anthony, especially what we've seen up till now. Like they're all foolish, but nothing has been that malicious. What he is doing now is like, no, he is taking joy in bringing these men to their knees and just messing with their brain. I think, well, maybe a bit earlier, but definitely right now, Anthony the monster has been made. Mm -hmm. He is the monster. When he said he's the devil, I really think he means it and he believes it. He is Rathen Connor. Initially, he was like, these guys who killed my brother, I'm pissed off, I'm in anguish, I'm angry, you know, all these feelings. And then at some point, again, it could have been before the movie even started, at some point, he has become the devil, he has become a monster, and he's become everything he loathes. Because another thing as well is, I got a feeling that Anthony, and, and what I love about this movie is that they give you no context, no exposition about his, he's just in the army, that's it. But I got yeah. a feeling, that filling the gaps with my own head, in that he was either a very exceptional or a very competent soldier who is very good at what he does, and he probably left with honorable discharge or whatever. And this is after where he's suffered through the pain. He's processed everything. And again, this is why I love Manhunter as well. Where like, basically, at that moment in Manhunter when Francis is, Francis is gone forever. The Red Dragon is. That's where, mm. Ant- that's where Anthony is now. Anthony's dead. Richard. Sorry, Richard. Sorry, yeah. Richard is dead. Now it's the devil. Now it's the monster that he's become. And this, like he said, the, you know, the psychological damage, the glee that he's taken in it and the sort of, the level of uh, uh, suffering he's given to these guys. This is monstrous. This is, even though these guys are utter bastards, this is insane what he's doing. What a good inversion as well that he saves the most torture for Herbie. Like, Normally, yeah. you build your way up to Sonny. Sonny would have been the last guy killed, but he he kills Sonny in an almost offhand manner. Like, no, he's Sonny he's got done. Off easy, he's yeah. out of the way. He goes on to torture the other two men even more. But just your normal storytelling trope would be you're building up to the big bad, and this movie does the exact opposite, especially when. He yeah. goes on his further journey after this. Yeah, because he's becoming yes. the big bad. Yeah. There, there is. is no big bad. He is the one. Yeah, he is, like, obviously, he, what, what I love about this is that Richard is just basically saying, like, fuck you to your archetypes, fuck you to everything. If you want a revenge movie, we're not going down, well, you know, the story that he's doing isn't going to be, like you mentioned, Death Wish. It's going to be more realistic and more sort of, even when it goes surreal, like it does, you know, with the, with the acid trip and everything like that, it's still grounded in that the effect that is taking on Richard and the monster he's becoming is shown in this, especially how he torments, you know, torments Herbie and what he did to 
tough. Oh, yeah. The, well, you know, what we're going to see, what tough. he's going to do. We're, yeah. we're coming Talk up about a horror right now, movie yeah. moment. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. That reveal. Uh, so after he smashes, saws his nose and his brain, um, he pulls out a suitcase from the Harry Potter closet in the hall <laughs> and forces Herbie to open it. And inside, I don't know how he chopped him up or broke his body, but he doesn't look like he's cut it. That's the no. best up yeah. part. It just looks like a yeah, pretzel. He, yeah. It reminded me there's an episode of Creep Show with uh I think it's called The Man in the Suitcase, um, where there's a uh, a genie who grants wishes, uh, or who whenever he gets hurt, uh spout, spouts coins from his mouth, who's a folded up man in a suitcase. And it's just utterly crazy. Wow. But that had, you know, like Greg Nicotero making the special effects. I don't know who, who oh, yeah. makes this, but it's a body in a suitcase and it's horrifying. The face looks yeah. so like the, dead and just like this. Yeah. The face and like the, the wrinkles on yes. the neck. And I, I, it, it doesn't quite look real but in that way it's almost more yeah. unsettling because it just looks fucked up and then it goes a flash but then you get a longer shot of it and then you start to figure out like wait that's the the leg right. the foot wait the foot's up by the head but yeah. then where's what just imagine if like richard if he would have opened that suitcase and what should have come out of there was a uh, belial from basket case and then belial <laughs> killing that would have been hilarious <laughs> <laughs> so Richard uh, offers, offers Herbie a deal uh, he says there's one last man and if Herbie tells him where he lives that he'll let him live um, and this part once again Richard is totally given over to his monstrous side because he assures Herbie again and again like, I, I'm a man of my word. I don't back down. I mean what I say. And then he embraces Herbie, who is still out of his gourd on psychedelics and amphetamines at this point. And then he uses that. And they say later that it's a blunt knife. That little three-inch yeah. blade. Yeah. yeah, I noticed that. that yeah. And he stabs him in the back with it. Like, he embraces the man it's and so stabs cool. him. Oh. And you feel it, like I think as an audience member, you feel that the the stab. Yeah, because I thought um, he was going to let Herbie sort of go, at least hunt him down. But then, like I said, he's the monster. What does the devil do? He he doesn't. You know, the devil says, "I'm going to let you go." <laughs> Don't believe that. So he lets this more fool again, us, the audience. This man dies with hope in his heart. Like that's oh, what he. That's bad. I was going to say again. The shout out to. Stuart Wolfenden, because I think the actor in this scene goes through such a wide variety of absolute terror to then possibly there being hope and then like absolution that maybe this man has forgiven him. And, you know, you see when he says, you're a good man, Richard mm -hmm. says to him, and you see him <sighs> nodding like, yes, I am. And all of this builds up to like Herbie almost seemingly finding peace with everything that has happened. And then... Richard fucking kills him. Oh. Yeah. Like, it's... Because it, he has tears in his eyes, obviously. Like, he's welling up as well. Maybe he is... Like, yeah, like I said, uh, what, what was his name? Uh, Stuart, Stuart Wolfenden. The actor. Yeah. Like, like yeah. the... Like the... 
emotional roller coaster he goes through. And and also I kinda like it that it closes the loop of okay, fair enough, we're not following the traditional storytelling method of like you know, working up the ranks to the boss. But I do like the sort of loop it closes in that Herbie was the first one we met of this core group and Herbie's the last one to die. So it gives sort of closure. Like basically if again, if this was directed by someone else, you know, like a lesser director or anything, the film could have finished now and you would have been, yeah, sure. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a circle. It's closed. The end. That's it. That's in this moment. It it almost felt cheap to begin with when he reveals there was another man that we've never seen in the other flashbacks uh, mm-hmm. who was there. But it's like this. The way that it plays out is this kind of like poetic uh, ending, and I think it's yeah. the absolute perfect ending to the story um the only way it could go richard and anthony head off across the fields and forests again uh what's what's the song you got the song for this one sean a king for a day and not a night for a king or something like that oh this was the this was one that i the the bonnie prince billy song yeah a night for uh, a king at night a king at night which again i love bonnie prince billy yeah and his 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 collaborations with uh, Bill Callahan. I, I don't know if you've listened to him. Like they've really been collaborating recently. They they work so well together. And we see two little kids. Oh. They're playing battling tops. They take off down the street. I believe these are Patty Considine's nephews. Yeah, because yeah, you see, there's so, yeah. two ki- There's two other Considines yeah. in this movie. Um, and this gives such a feel of like Richard and Anthony being kids. And, and as we see before, like when there's that flashback footage of them playing as little toddlers and baby, um, it, it, there's something about like just watching that old family footage and stuff and seeing kids like this that brings about a certain melancholy for like you, you know, the lost childhood that you don't have anymore, and yeah, just a lot of stuff. What a, um, the kids take I was just off, say, what a perfect they come back later. Their mom says, What the hell are you wearing? Because one kid has the gas mask on, and the other kid has the knife. Not only just a knife, but the knife that was used to kill Herbie. Yeah. Uh, the mom freaks out. Kids say that a soldier who knows their dad gave them the stuff. Uh, the dad gets home. He goes out with the kids to look for him. And Richard, being a super creep, hiding behind the hedge. <laughs> and... As soon as they take off, you see again and again that Richard, like his training, he knows how to ambush people, even if it's just to apologize to someone or to talk to somebody's wife. He knows how to like manipulate people or how to get people alone. Yeah, again, that's why I think like what they tell you through the film without any exposition is that he is very good at what he does. And it's just a tragedy what he uses it for is fucking horrific shit um and like i said even when he goes to apologize they're like oh no what's he going to do to her now oh no i'm scared whenever richard moves i also think at this point richard is sizing up the wife because he says ah oh, you're a good mother i think he's trying to figure out if these people are monsters too because yeah uh, it's also as well is they don't tell you how much time has uh has gone how much time has passed from anthony being tortured to now it could be two years later 
it could be you know ten years later even like there's there's no time because there's because I got a feeling this this uh, new guy I don't know his name the, the 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 new guy I don't know if he had these I, I doubt he would have had these kids at the time when he was with the old crew so it's at least a few years. I feel like his current wife would never have put up with him being friends with that group of people. Exactly. So it's at least a feel like those kids look like five, six, something like that. So, and it also sort of fills in the gaps of like, holy shit, how bad has Richard been going through the process of finding out what happened to his brother to exacting his revenge? And, and I still believe at some point between those two uh, time, uh, you know, those two dates, Richard died, and he became the monster. Mm-hmm. He's just been living as this monster for, like, literally a creature living in an abandoned farmhouse, like, sleeping rough. He sleeps on pallets, like, not even with covers yeah. or anything. He just, everything about him, he's he's not human anymore. He's not a man. Because you don't even know, and, and again, it's, it's, it's a... It's, it's one of the positives, many positives of this film in that you don't know about Richard or Anthony's extended family. You don't know how their parents took it. You don't know if he has un- uncles, nephews, or if Richard just burnt all those bridges and literally went AWOL not only from the military or from his life. Like, he just an en- he becomes, <laughs> speaking of slashes, he becomes the shape. He yeah. becomes an entity for revenge. And that's... So... I was just going to say, that is so often, like, the slasher trope. Um, Things like like Prom Night, something like that, where somebody was done wrong. Um, My Bloody Valentine, right? Somebody comes back from the past, and in here, you're kind of asked, what if that guy was the hero, sort of, for a while? And I I think, um, you know, you're, you're very quickly answered with, the, the idea that you can't embark on this kind of journey and maintain your humanity. You can't uh, look into the abyss without it looking into you type of thing. Yeah. Like it would be wild if, uh, even if Halloween or Friday the 13th, you know, the pinnacle slasher movies, they ended with, Fred, uh, with uh, Jason and Michael going to the final girl and saying, please kill me. I don't know what I've done. I've become a monster. I've, it still would work in a crazy way if that was a slasher any slasher directors out there if you want to end your film but then again i don't think you'll get much franchise opportunities <laughs> <laughs> unless you talk about zombie stuff but again we'll get to it it's just like this film is a weird combination of thriller horror black comedy slasher like it touches all the key points and like even social drama you can chuck that in because of uh, Anthony's, uh, you know, the the way he mm-hmm. is, the way the, the character is portrayed, it touched so many levels, and yet it goes beyond that. It just like it, it can go forever. Like the analysis or the unpacking of this movie again. That's why I love it. Like each time you watch it, you see something new. That's us. I love movies that you can grow up with, and as you grow up. You view them differently each mm-hmm. time. And that's my experience with this. Watching this as a 23-year-old or whatever who kind of took glory out of revenge movies versus now a 35-year-old where I, I want all violence to be avoided. 
if possible, you know. Yeah. It, it it's just interesting to watch movies again and again as you grow up. Um so Mark returns home, Richard is gone, Mark's wife um confronts him, and this is where we get, thankfully, our final flashback. Uh he confesses to his wife. Sonny forced Anthony to take acid. Uh they drive to this farmhouse they're fucking with him they put a rope around his neck they drag him in there they tell him it's the devil's house i think this all feels very like passion of joan of arc kind of with the music that's yeah. playing because it's very big like gregorian church like it's very Organ, dramatic and with the and black and white imagery and then you get <clears throat> uh, like very christian imagery of at one point it looks like they're they put some kind of walk made of um straw on his head or something almost like the crown of thorns yeah um, this feels very yeah like new testament kind of um they take anthony in they they leave him in the farmhouse he's completely broken and then they all run out and abandon him and mark after this we see that anthony in his broken mental state hangs himself yeah. mark tells his wife that or no, he, Mark is clearly broken by this, and uh, this actor, like he comes in in the last so ten good. minutes of this movie, so good. Fucking hell! Like, like the 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 amount of stress that's on him to give a performance, and he delivers so well. And and also his wife in the it, it feels so real, and that that's the extra gut punch where you get the sort of ending of the well this story being revealed and, it, and explaining exactly the full atrocities that they did to Anthony, you're, you're like, holy shit, this guy really delivers it and really brings it home. I feel like after the almost comedic heights that it goes to and the surrealistic place that it goes to when the last of the gangster guys are, are tripping, like, the imagery there gets surreal it starts mixing the home video footage or the home movies footage with their own yeah. memories uh, to the point where you're never quite sure what's real and what's imagined and to come back to this very grounded dramatic place of these last few moments is uh it's really masterful the way it's done and yeah i don't know who this who mark is i've never seen him in anything else that i can recall but just nails it. Yeah. We get a title card. Day five. We wake up. Uh, Mike wakes up on the couch. And Richard has a knife to him. Richard makes him drive him to the farm. And this is where we get the, the final confrontation. And this is really where Richard proves himself to not be our protagonist. Because all along people said, Oh, you uh, They've they've said, you know, they're making telling Anthony that his brother joined the army to get away from him. And you think that it's that they're just mocking him, but then Richard confesses here that that it's true, that his brother was an embarrassment to him, and that he he left town to get away from his brother. Uh, this part really breaks me. Patty's scene here in the yeah. end. Um this one really broke me down emotionally. The way the way I see it, as well, is again when I, when I see this film, the sort of theory that I have is, um, uh, you know, Richard died as when his brother died, so this is the devil, 
and this is a monster justifying to himself. Again, I think at some point he would have loved his brother or still did love his brother. But I think at this moment in time, Richard died five days ago. Richard does not exist. And this monster, this vengeful vessel, did consider Anthony to be an embarrassment. And this is the justification he gave himself to create this like warpath. It's nothing else. And like, like basically, he is one of the four horsemen. That's what he is. He is just a walking machine of death. And it's not glorified. It's not made into an exciting, flashing thing. It is just, again, like you said, the, the downer of, uh, of 2021. Whoever watches this for the first time, I do apologize. Don't expect up. This is not up. <laughs> like, well, to be fair, the first 10 minutes of up is... We'll get up. We'll yeah. get up soon. Yeah, but, but I'd, say, I'd say the first 10 minutes is kind of like Dead yeah. Man Shoes of up. <laughs> but, but yeah, this, this fucking film, oh. And uh, yeah, oh. and I've got to say, especially when he says Anthony was an embarrassment, I think Mark also has like a visceral reaction to that because he's like, then why... He doesn't say it, but it kind of feels like... Them, what the fuck is going on if he was an embarrassment to you? I think there's so many levels to it. The line that kills me is when Richard asks, was he calling for my name? Was he screaming my name? He still is. That part, I, I, there's so much in that line. It broke my heart. Yeah. Uh, Patty, uh, Richard tells Mark that he's a monster. He doesn't know what he's capable of. It's at this point that we get little shots of him with Mark's kids. Yeah. And we start to realize that Richard might be like on the border of completely out of control of now killing innocent people. Well, I think for a fact, if Mark didn't kill him and Richard would have killed Mark, he would have gone back and killed his family and he would have carried on because he. He's death now. He's walking death, and he has to be stopped. And unless someone stops him, I I think he'll even go back and look for whoever Sonny's family is. Whoever, like he'll just kill everyone uh, until he is stopped because he doesn't want to live anymore. Have you seen The Hitcher? Yes. Record Howard. Yes. That's yes. basically his character. John Ryder is like, I've become a monster. I've become death. And someone needs to stop me. And so yeah. he's out on the highway looking for someone to stop him. Uh, like this is, that's, I know Rutger Hauer in uh, Blade Runner and also well, his other role that I love is uh, in Blind Fury. I love <laughs> that. But in, in Hitcher, he, yeah, he makes that movie because that movie could have been just another run of the mill, whatever movie. C. Thomas Howell is not great. No. But, but, but Rucker Howard, um, that scene at the diner where Rucker Howard just Puts does an coin. eyebrow twitch, it just, it, Rucker Howard raises one eyebrow and it's a gif. And it's like, there's so much charisma in that one little <laughs> eyebrow raise than I've had in the past five years, you know? <laughs> yeah. And the, yeah, the, the same sort of element where he, uh, I think, also, fuck it, we'll talk about the hitches a little bit. Um, the, when, <laughs> when, when he throws his shackles, like everything he does in that, and when he throws his shackles at the end, at C. Thomas Howell, and then when he just gets blasted away, 
that's forever in my head. That is just amazing. That sort of whole sort of set piece and. And also, I think uh, the other part, like, like I mentioned, when he puts the coins <laughs> on C. Thomas Howell's face, um, it just the, like, that, that's the most that C. Thomas Howell could be charismatic in that film. Nothing against you, <laughs> C. Thomas Howell, but but honestly, but you were up against you, a giant. You were you're up against... going up against Rucker fucking Howard <laughs> and, and possibly lose. his best performance of his career. Like, <laughs> yeah. Good luck, dude. Oh, man. It was like when we watched... Um, not the brood a different chrono scanners yeah and you have michael ironside in that final scene acting yeah. against whoever the lead of scanners is exactly and it's that like, just gives you, you the whole point michael fucking ironside chewing the scenery and like devouring the world and then this other guy who's like a c-level actor at best that belongs on local theater and i'm like you poor bastard you never had a chance <laughs> oh god <laughs> so richard says mark you have to kill me. Mark doesn't want to, but Richard says, I'm going to do something if you do not do this. Take this knife now and kill me. Grabs Mark by the hand and eventually is able to coax Mark into one plunge of the knife into his chest. It's right at this moment that Aphex Twin, Nanu, Nanu 2, plays, and this is that uh, very minimalist piano part mm. that I really love this song. And um, the final shot of this movie is Mark walking away, and this one kind of surprised me, because it seems like it's a helicopter shot. Josh, I was curious if you had any... Yeah, I definitely called this out, because you, as you fly out over these fields, it's a helicopter, but it's, um, looks like it's also handheld at the same time, because, but it wobbles a little bit, and it's this, like, ascension to heaven kind of feeling that I get from it. Um, Definitely. I felt like a spirit floating over the English countryside. And there's, it's a lot more tactile feeling than what you get with like your, a modern drone shot. Uh, and I really like that aspect of it because it feels more just handmade and like crafted of a moment. Yeah. My final note for this movie, England is really green. Yeah. That part of England is really green. Um, yeah, so um, how did you guys feel after rewatching it? <laughs> I it, this this was harder for me to watch this time, as I think I've as I've gotten older, I think I've gained more empathy, or I, I like to hope so that I've grown up and been able to put myself in other people's shoes better and try to understand people's plights better than as a piece of shit, angry young 20-something. Um, so this was much more challenging to watch today. I honestly, Umar, I know you had, and I have discussed this movie before and how much we both love it, but as I was watching this, I kind of regretted choosing it for the podcast because I was just like, how, how are we not going to get depressed talking about this? I know, and Josh, I know with like Perfect Blue, we were able to do it. So that was what gave right. me confidence, but... As I was watching this, I was like, man, this is going to be a hard movie to talk about because mm. it's so dark and so bleak. Yeah. And, but uh, I guess w one of the things is, w one of the things I take away from this movie is, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I'm so happy it exists is obviously it's a story that needs to be told, but it's also one of the main influences, one of the main influences on, on Lad. 
on, on my story. Like, I was like, I've always been a fan of Dead Man's Shoes and Blue Ruin and that sort of aesthetic, that sort of like neo-noir, again, that's another sort of thing that you can put, the you know, category you can put Dead Man's Shoes in. So it, it stuck with me and that sort of permuted here and, you know, uh, you know, percolated in my brain and just a whole bunch of other stuff and I was like I really want to do my version of Dead Man's Shoes and, and, and Blue Ruin and that sort of aesthetic and it it is a depressing and harrowing movie uh, case in point when I, whenever I mention it to people and also like this year uh, my wife watched it for the first time it stuck with her four days after she'd never seen it before and I was like and, and I was kind of happy that happened because I'm like, oh, that means you're a human being. Good. Because if it was someone else who watched it and they were like, oh, yeah, I guess that was okay. I'm like, how do you not feel anything after watching this? Like, at least something. Come on. <laughs> Help me out here. Which, this which movie, is, by the end of this movie, I, I'm emotionally exhausted. Exactly. And one of the things that sort of baffled me is, uh, obviously, I, I, I didn't know the reviews at the time, but whenever you look at, you know, people reviewing it, the critics were kind of lukewarm towards it going like well it's a bit juvenile and i'm like again it's one of the reasons why i don't tend to like critics it's that old cliche that i don't really like critic reviewing stuff especially when you look at this and they're like yeah it had good moments but no it seemed a bit too bloody and a bit gross well, that's the whole fucking point but sometimes critics and horror don't really go well with each other they sort of miss the point and yeah, and it, and it is kind of easy to miss the point on this movie that they could be easily thinking, oh, it, it's aiming to glorify stuff. No fucking way. <laughs> no way. This does not put a, a like like a panache or sort of oh, uh, ain't this so cool that he basically open palm strike a guy that his nose went into his brain. That's not meant to be cool. That's gross. That's not <sighs> good, man. No, you just saying that brings back that moment of just disgust mm. <laughs> i don't like um josh how would you rate um the uh, dead man's dead shoes. shoes oh god <laughs> the thing we talk about for two and a half hours is all right <laughs> uh well i rated it four stars on the on the old letterbox um because i do i think it's it it tricks you so many times into thinking that it's something else that the last moments really are that gut punch that you guys were talking about. It is such a, I, I feel like almost like a Michael Haneke level of, uh, you want it to be this standard revenge film and it gives you your medicine of no, that's a horrible person. They're all horrible people. <laughs> and you for even wanting that are kind of, um, complicit in the action and yeah. it does like i feel mm. kind of judged after <laughs> after watching this movie by the movie itself but i think that it's such a good piece of art that is able to do that to achieve that level richard betrays the audience in the end when richard admits that he was a shitty yeah. brother because yeah. we're on his side the whole time and then at the end I'm like oh dude wait you suck yeah and the yeah. fact that all of these little moments we've gotten with him and Anthony uh, bonding and reminiscing about things you understand are now his justification rather than actual moments. Yeah. 
oh my god it's so like he is such a wounded animal in this that you think he's just this just this pillar of vengeance but he's really also so broken and broken hearted that this is all he can do oh my god it yeah, yeah it is insane and umar go ahead and what what do you give this movie what's your final thoughts well yeah 10 out of 10 whatever like it, it's amazing um from the first time i watched it to the numerous rewatches it's a film that sticks with you and it sticks with you in a way that a film should um like yeah it makes you think it makes you question the choices in the movie it makes you question what happened why it happened but then also it doesn't give you straightforward answers that you are looking for uh because surprise surprise people are fucking complicated it is a very complicated movie for something that is a sort of on paper a simple through line uh man uh, sorry a brother uh, uh yeah, sorry a man gets murdered brother comes out for vengeance full stop yeah you know there's dozens of movies like that but this is a beast all, all on itself um especially with the limitations that they had in place they did this in three weeks they uh you know improvised like you said a lot of it and they had a under a million pound budget to do all of this and they carried it out with such efficiency and such like you it gets to the point and also another thing i like about it is it doesn't meander too much it doesn't have any lulls it is just straight away from the get-go we are here and this is the next part and this is the next part and this is the part that's going to make you feel like shit and this is the part that's going to make you even feel like more shit and the end and and you appreciate it because you're like holy shit and i, I tell you another revenge film that i really like that's a, a more recent one and it, it's very different to dead man's shoes and blue ruin and other films like that but i, I consider it in the same ilk and the same vein as those is the french movie revenge oh um, it's on, it's it. i put okay. it on my list the other day someone else brought it up recently i i will really recommend watching it um it's one that I, I'd never watched, and again, it's my wife who watched it, and she said, you've got to watch it. It's, 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 it's one of those, like, you know, left, uh, Last House on the Left sort of revenge films. Like, you think it'll be like that. Like, the premise is like that. Like, like someone gets, unfortunately, like, you know, horribly sexually assaulted, but she gets revenge on the, uh, on, on the perpetrators, but it's done by a, a female director and a female, you know, writer-director. So it's very interesting from that perspective, and it is highly stylized, highly like totally different to Dead Man's Shoes and Blue Ruin, but it has that same sort of um, like vibe to it, basically, sort of your highbrow revenge movie as opposed to your exploitation. Oh, look at this! Ain't this awesome sort of film? So I, I really recommend that to you guys and you know to the listeners. Revenge. Um, Seek that one out. I think it's uh, streaming on Shutter, if I'm not mistaken, currently. Yeah, that's where I saw it. Sean, I would <laughs> give this movie uh, four and a half out Ooh. of five. Uh, it's right up there with Blue Ruin for me. I think if I were to put this movie and Blue Ruin side by side. 
I feel like I would go with Blue Ruin most mm. times just because it's not as depressive. Blue <laughs> Ruin's still very depressing, but I, 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 I really think I took a half star off this movie just because it's a challenging experience to watch it. And yeah. so I don't know if it's like it's a movie that I struggle to watch. And so when I do my movie reviews, it's not really on the quality of the movie. It's more on like my experience watching it is kind of how I would say I rate movies. And um, yeah, just like the difficulty downer parts of this one make it so hard. But this is an excellent movie. Um, the acting is pretty incredible. I don't think we gave enough credit to Toby Kebbell because this yeah. performance could easily be problematic. Mm -hmm. This could easily be a terrible performance that's completely disrespectful. But I think he finds that, that line right there, like in the middle, and um, is able to portray someone who seems to be on the spectrum um, pretty well, uh, I think. Yeah, he, he is really good at... Um... Yeah, portraying that sort of um, sort of person, and I, and I obviously I don't know if this is true, but obviously Toby Kebbell being the sort of actor he is, I bet he did extensive research because it looks like he did. If that makes sense, it looks like he understood and sort of came from a place of understanding, as opposed to oh, I know how they act or I know how it is. No, you can't do it like that. So I got a feeling he at least put some effort towards it on his side to portray it like properly i think that, that that's one one of the reasons why it, it doesn't feel like it's yeah problematic or like you, you don't feel like oh this ain't gonna age well because guess what it has in the film it's aged all right 17 years later and it's still like it could be released today and you wouldn't change much on it no you feel the respect that he's putting into it and it's definitely not an exploitation role as mm. so many movies have portrayed it as yeah and just to say for me like when i say i give this film a 10 it's also that if you were to ask about blue room that's oh yeah i give that a 10 as well so it'd be like a, a 10.01 <laughs> to a 10.02 like both of these movies are on the top of my list at all times uh but i would have to agree with you sean that blue ruin just edges it a little bit for yes not being so much of a, as a downer and also, it just has that extra little polish to it. The just... look of the, the look of Blue Ruin. Josh and I watched like the camera test stuff for that, and what Saulnier did in that movie with that camera, it just has this feel that just sucks me into that world. Yeah. And this one has like, I really like Shane Meadows' kind of minimalist directing approach a lot of times because it feels very human and you just get a feel for these characters with their improvising and the long takes and you're just kind of a verite fly on the wall in some of like when you're hanging out in the stoner den. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's great, but it doesn't quite grab you like a Saulnier camera movement or making Blair driving that car around or making sneaking around you know it's, um... it's, it's just the little parts in blue ruin that uh, like even at the beginning like parallel to dead man's shoes where you don't know what's going on and they just go into the pub uh walk into the pub and obviously it kicks off from there it's same with uh blue room where make on blair is uh just it's so ingenious how he does it like 
you're like, oh, why is he taking the car battery out of a bag and then he's plugging it in and switching it on? And then you're like, oh, oh, that's it because he hasn't been using the car for. A that's pretty smart. I never thought of that because normally if it was any other film, it'll just be, oh, he hasn't used this car for a year. He turns the car on and magically the starter battery is fine. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it's little things in both films that really add a lot. Yeah, I love the when a director is able to convey so much information with a seemingly tiny little detail like that, you know that you're in the hands of somebody who really knows what they're doing. Yeah. All right. Uh, that was Blue Ruin. No, it wasn't. Next, we are going to be talking <laughs> was about that Blue Ruin? the fog. Okay, no, that's... God damn it. <laughs> Oftentimes when you're choking, you're kind of in a haze. You know what else is like haze? Fog. Yay! Segway uh, of the year goes yay, to Josh. Good job, there. Josh. Thank you, thank you. You found it. <laughs> I found something. Um, right off the bat, uh, well, who who's made the fog, Josh? Oh, the the fog. Everybody should know the fog because it's a John Carpenter film written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, produced by Deborah Hill, the fantastic. Uh, Deborah Hill, who we have to thank for for so much of our shared culture, mm. um, tiny little movie, one point one million dollar budget. Um, this is uh, nineteen eighty, and I wanted to get into the logo that we see at the very top. That's how early I want to start this conversation. The Avco Embassy logo. I don't know about you guys. It warms my heart to see that logo pop up on the screen. With its little star and the little AE. Yeah. Do you guys have, have memories of that one? No, not, not myself. No, I, I don't. Uh, it's, they also released uh, Phantasm. Oh, yeah. Uh, prom, prom Night. Scanners. Like, it was only this logo for a short time, I think. But it's it's got such, like, it's indelible to me for, like, popping on a, a VHS tape. So, after I watched both these movies this morning... I then started to watch Stay Tuned with uh, some friends on Discord and immediately decided that I was just going to close my eyes and rest my eyes, as I put it, but I was going <laughs> back to sleep. But that movie opens with the Morgan Creek, and so mm. you get the Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where That one gives me goosebumps every time, because I, I, as I said, I think Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves has about 30 or 40 minutes of, like, some of my favorite movie of all time. It, 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 it's a, it, that movie's really bloated. But inside that movie, there's some sequences and scenes that, like, I love. It has one of the best montages I've ever seen. Yeah. The one where Robin teaches all the forest people mm -hmm. how to live in the forest. And they're making arrows, and they're lifting up the things, and they're shooting things, and it's just the, the music... Oh, a good montage, Umar, gets me going. Yeah, no, I get you. Uh, with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the things that I remember the most are Alan Rickman uh, going to see a witch, and Mo yeah. Mo Morgan, uh, no, yeah, was Morgan Freeman in that? Yes. Yeah, yes. sort of, kind of, like, you could tell it was early 90s Hollywood, sort of understanding the representations of a Muslim, but not quite getting it. I'm like, no, that's not quite there, Morgan, but I appreciate the effort. So those are the two things I remember <laughs> about Prince of Thieves. Yeah. Well, a solid like, B plus I give you, Morgan, because it's you. Yeah, <laughs> the, the director was probably like, well, 
we didn't cast a white guy, so I think we should get applauded for that. Yeah, yeah. and especially <laughs> in 1992, like, holy shit. Like, uh, it, it'll be the, uh, oh, what's it, what's it called, uh, the, 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 the test? Is it Bechtel? The Bechtel test? Yeah, 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 yeah. it'd be like that, but for Muslims, they're like, yeah, we didn't cast a white guy or a guy in, in uh, brownface, so give me points for that. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, you get points, especially in 1992. You get all the points you need for that. But yeah, Prince of Thieves is a bloated, but yeah, it's a very fun <laughs> sort of move, but I, uh, I prefer Mel Brooks version. Quickly, I, I want to give a plug to an open panel discussion, or just a panel discussion that you did about Muslim representation in video games ah, and yeah. in media. And you did it um, a couple, maybe like six months ago, I can't remember. It was on YouTube. Yeah. I really recommend everyone check it out. It's really interesting and fascinating to get multiple perspectives from people who grew up playing video games and constantly seeing the Muslim characters as most likely the enemy terrorist or maybe a completely one single layer character. You, you know, like you'd never have a fleshed out Muslim character who was a realistic representation of a person. No. And no. Um, you guys really opened my eyes to a lot of stuff with that panel discussion. No, I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Sean. It, it, it was uh, myself. I did it uh, because of the work that I did on Close Hand, the, the video game uh, that I worked on. Uh, there was a uh, Shah Chowdhury on the Romana Ramzan and Anissa Sanusi. I think that like basically I just came in just to give representation. Uh, you know, obviously as as a Muslim male, but then not that so much in video games. So mine was just from like the point of view of someone who plays video games. But it's just funny with me and these three other people, like the moderator as well, who were like, "Oh yeah, we have an industry and like you know we work in video games." So I was like, "Yeah." So as a gamer, I don't know much. I don't know how I ended up here, but I can talk about it, I guess. But it was fun. It was like, I'm really glad you found it insightful. But I was just ha I was just happy that I had these like three pros to bolster me up and like sort of helped me out when I was like uh, like you know, like like you know, just like I don't know how I, like you know, when there's like a what's it called like a uh, what's that Mulaney joke uh, a horse in the hospital that's how yes. I'm, like, I'm in the okay I'm here yeah, again but, but I, I, I'm glad but you're you're a writer and yeah. writing is you writing is universal you know absolutely and but also along with writing comes imposter syndrome that's impossible to get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hey Umar, yeah. is being a writer is that is all that you see or seem but a dream within a dream as a writer? You know, I think Edgar Allan Poe nicked that from me. <laughs> uh, also, spark it up, boys, because it's four twenty. We are just about to hit midnight on four twenty one, so this movie starts on four twenty. We got an old man telling a story about a small ship that Paul pulls up, and it. Uh, the fog arrives with it. The ship was called the Elizabeth Dane, and it crashed off the sea on uh, some rocks, and it sank to the bottom, and the crew died, and the fog immediately retreats. So right off the bat, I love when a movie similar to, um, is it Friday 13th Part 2? Yeah. yeah. Yes. When, it, when you get that campfire story to start a movie, man, that sets up a tone, doesn't it? Yeah. And I've just have to mentally switch gears from the film that we've been talking about for two and a half hours because I'm like, holy shit, this film is fun. <laughs> I remember Yes. This. And, and um, for me, it's also Friday 13th Part 2, but obviously I didn't see that until I was, you know, teen, you know, a few years older. But as a kid, obviously campfire stories are something that's, you know, ubiquitous with US culture and everything like that. 
but I remember it from uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Oh Where yeah. Oh yeah. The, was it Sun? That's that show scared the shit out of me. Oh, that clown one with the cards, or yeah, that the blue and yellow clown. Oh, remember? Yep. yep. There's one where there's a soup that's so good that if you eat it, you get cursed or something. Uh, <laughs> there's the monkey paw one yeah. where the kid makes the wishes. Uh, mess up, Umar. What's your history with the fog, by the way? Because this was. This was basically the movie that you suggested to us, and then I kind of paired it with Dead Man's Shoes, which we had also talked about. Yeah. But the theme of this idea of this podcast with this pairing, I don't know how well they would work actually watching back-to-back, because I did it this morning, and but tonally, they're very wh- wh- different. Which one did you watch first? Um, I went... Uh, the fog first, and then Dead Man That's shoes, and I feel like wrong. that was a. Mi- That's what you did. I feel wrong. like it was a mistake. Yes. yes. So, <laughs> so, but the theme of this that uh, was like the past coming back to haunt you. Yes. Was the idea that I kind of honed in on with these two movies. I think the connection for me would be as well, like like a personal connection, is these were both films that I watched as a teenager. And, and and on TV, like uh, the Freeview channels, like I mentioned, on on Dead Man's Shoes, um, I probably watched this around fifteen or sixteen years old when I was on a carpenter fix. And to be fair, I haven't really let go since then. So it was. Uh, I'll be honest, straight off the bat, this is not my personally favorite carpenter film, but that's by no means saying I don't like this movie. So it's like it's like saying like Carpenter from nineteen seventy six to even like eighty eight, including you know like you know, um, it was uh, Prince of Darkness and then True uh, and then They Live, wasn't it? Yeah. So mm-hmm. up until yep. eight, that twelve years, he fucking hit every single like even Starman, which is completely different. Like, like that era, I can watch any Carpenter film. Uh, even the Elvis TV movie that he did with with the Kurt Russell, yeah, sure, I love them all. But um, this one, what do you think of Prince of Darkness? Because that FS, we discussed that with Dustin. That's coming out in two or three days. That episode, it is weird and I like it. I like it. It's, 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 <laughs> yes, it's, it's it just like with Martha Modness as well. Which, yep, is that early nineties? Yeah, yeah, no, Martha Madness, I believe, is early nineties because. Like, just talking about Carpenter in general, like, if anyone uh, who deserves respect for what he did, he's the guy, because I'll be honest, recently, okay, fair enough, he has involvement in Halloween and Halloween, well, the upcoming Halloween Kills. He's not directing, but he has direct involvement, which I like. You know, 95 to (laughs) 2000 plus Carpenter didn't happen. I don't remember that. Sorry. He's a guy who stopped directing after Martha Madness. What about, cig- what about Cigarette Burns? I haven't seen that. Masters of Horror I haven't episode. seen that. I've heard good things. Oh. About that. That's that's like, I think that's his one diamond in the rough okay. after that, because right after that or right before that, you get Ghosts of Mars, <sighs> which is dog shit. Oh, that hurts. That hurts. The Ghosts of Mars. I remember like convincing myself that i was really into it but i think i was just really high the first time i watched it and i was like excited that there was metal in a movie and but then if you you watch the recording and it's like 
John Carpenter hanging out with Buckethead and Scott Ian from Anthrax in the studio, recording like shredding metal riffs over this movie that none of it fits. No. It, that movie was supposed to be Escape from Mars. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. But Escape from LA bombed so bad. Yeah. That... It is. I think one of the. And Statham. Statham's. Oh, yeah, he was in just it. so flat. He was in it. <laughs> yeah, he's the lead. I thought Ice Cube was and the Natasha lead. And Natasha Henstridge. I thought Ice Cube was the lead. But let, let's just put it this way Ice Cube was more memorable. Because he was in it as well, wasn't he? Ice Cube. In... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's. You see, like I like that you said he's more memorable, yeah. and then you asked us to confirm exactly. that he was in the movie. <laughs> because that's that, that just shows you how how much I do not care for that movie. And and the thing is, I love it that I, I just want to get the dirty laundry out of the way. In that, I love Computer, I love his movies, but man, come on, like the oh, like I, I blame Chevy Chase. Oh, that's all I'm going to say. Your memoirs of an invisible man, or whatever it was. Ugh. I've never seen it. Don't. I've never seen that or or Starman. Starman's okay. Starman is John mm-hmm. Carpenter going for the sort of, and I also love the theme song in it. It is really orchestral and it's really like powerful. But it's funny, like, yeah. Ten years apart, you got Starman, which has a lot of heart and a lot of soul and a lot of personal touches to it. And it's not his best movie, but it is a very enjoyable you know, uh, romance sci-fi movie, which you wouldn't really expect from John Carpenter. But then when you get Diary, Diary, what is it? Memoirs of an Invisible Man? Memoirs. Yeah. <laughs> it just, no. And But the thing is, Mouth so of Madness. what's the good. vibe of that with Chevy Chase? Is Chevy Chase doing pratfalls in a John Carpenter movie? Like, No, I think he's more like... Is it a comedy? What? It's, it's not quite anything, because Daryl Hannah's in it as well. And... It's another one like Ghost of Mars, which I do remember watching it, but all I remember is not liking it. And it's very weird, and it's sort of just blocked from my memory, because that's the thing, I don't like to say I don't like a movie unless I watch it. So I watched it, I have given it to you, and I tried, because of my love for John Carpenter's movie, I tried to, yes, let's try to see some good in it. I couldn't find it, just like with even Vampire. Vampires is okay, it has moments, but it's also got James Woods being an absolute, like, I don't buy him as the badass lead, especially like no. I, I, Vampires, I think, was another movie that I convinced myself I liked it. But if I rewatched it now, especially <laughs> with everyone now hating James Woods because I, I don't know. But apparently, he's gone off the deep right end oh, into yeah. oblivion. Oh yeah, so, so far, uh, so far. But even and he was already an asshole to begin. With. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so it's even worse. It's. Uh... It's kind of it's a trajectory that makes sense of like, oh, the guy you thought was an asshole. Well, guess what? He's an even bigger asshole right now. Oh, great, <laughs> good. But just to rein it back in before this turns into like a, like, you know, talking about John Carpenter's misses instead of hits, that period between <laughs> 1976 to 88 is amazing. Uh, and in fact, Assault on Precinct 13 is my favorite John Carpenter film. And it, it it just it just yeah because I love that movie so much because it's just very tight story very focused and that's my favorite but the thing is he followed that with Halloween I mean by that major major your major major films Halloween The Fog The Sultan Precinct Thirteen Starman um, uh, was it Big Trouble and then it was 
uh, Prince of Darkness and they live, I'm like, holy fucking shit. Like, the hits just keep on getting there. So, like, when I say The Fog is probably, like, my third or fourth favourite John Carpenter film, when you look at the body of work that he has there, it is that good. Like, The Fog is, is another one of those that I sort of stumble across. Uh, this time it was on uh, when I was about 14 years old, 15 years old, uh, you know, trying to get like the John Carpenter fix. It was on a channel in the UK called ITV4. So these were like with, with the sort of, uh, you know, the free view channels. There was like 30 extra channels and obviously BBC had BBC3, 4, and, you know, you know ITV4. The sort of vibe that ITV4 had, it was like basically without it becoming its slogan, it was like your dad's favourite channel. That's the sort of thing it was. It was like just like <laughs> sports. It was, you know, old game shows. And uh, at, in the evening, they just put on action movies or horror movies. And The Fog was one of the films that came on. So we went to, uh, I went to watch it. And yeah, straight from the campfire, campfire scene, I was, I'm hooked. <laughs> I'm into this. It is, it's slow, but in a very like unpacking way. Like, because like, I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that John Carpenter wanted to make this PG or PG-13. Mm-hmm. And, and he's considered this his PG-13 movie, which I'm like, holy shit, what sort of PG-13 movie is this? With it, there's not as much blood, but there is like some genuinely scares that I would not show to a kid. Like when, you know, when, when Blake kills... There's some kills. gore in this too. It's, it's bloodless gore, but... It's gore. And okay, John, like, yeah, if you want to say PG, sure, go for it, but... Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, 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 no. But it's true though. It is that the gore and the sort of visceral violence in it is—it's there <laughs> from start to finish. It is there, John. So I didn't think you quite made a PG thirteen, but you made a damn good movie. So you know, <laughs> it's fine. Um, but yeah, it was just like obviously when watching Assault, Halloween, um, The Fog, all that sort of time. That—that's when I sort of like you know my my love for John Carpenter. John, John Carpenter films grew and sort of the fog was right in the middle of it and it was at the time when I was watching Halloween and Assault on not Assault on Precinct 13 and uh, what's it called Escape from New York I think Fog I, was, I watched that a bit later after those and that's when I started watching I was like oh it's him it's that guy from his other movie oh that, that, wait is that is that Laurie well, what's she doing in here that's when like I was just like and it just sort of it made it cool. This is a cozy movie. Going back to like this whole goalie and rust of it all, it is a very cozy movie. Especially, I do love the, um, you know, Adrian Barbeau's character. Mm-hmm. Stevie yeah. Wayne. Stevie, yeah, like it's like <clears throat> she does it so well because I love the sort of sultry voice she does on the radio, and then when she's just talking, she this is a voice she puts on, and it's like, and I also love the sort of coziness of that that shot where she's walking towards a lighthouse, which I'm like, where is that place? I hope it still exists, because that is fucking gorgeous. Just, like, mm-hmm. and dangerous at the same time. Very dangerous. Like, there's, like, 100 steps to a lighthouse with, uh, like, I remember her grabbing onto the railings, and I'm like, yeah, I, I, I would do that too, because that does not seem safe, but it seems beautiful. Do you know how great my ass would look if I worked at that lighthouse walking those stairs every day? Uh, not to be approved, but I think, yeah, Adrian, you know, gets her steps in. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's a pretty woman. She's, That's all I can say. She's sultry. Yes, yeah. yeah. So 
this movie starts off with um, the old sea captain telling the story. The sea captain. So this once again, the cast in this I want to call out because the sea captain is played by John Houseman, who is otherwise known as the man who first hired Orson Welles to direct Macbeth on stage. Like this guy is the most legit. He co-founded the Mercury Theater with Wells, um, which then became famous for their Halloween broadcast of War of the Worlds. He wow. was instrumental in getting Citizen Kane made. So, like, John Houseman is legit Hollywood royalty from years back and had to be somebody who Carpenter would have idolized at this stage. Definitely. So to get to Killing include him, it's ghost so pirate cool. stories at yes! the end of his career. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? I love when I love when people are game and don't take their careers too seriously and are still willing to do fun bit parts and stuff like that. You know, yeah. and uh, all these kids that he's talking to, it's midnight. Yeah, these kids are like six years old. What this is going is no- on? This is a nocturnal town because they're. They're scheduling all of their town events around midnight. Uh-huh. I live in a small town. Shit doesn't happen after like 7 p.m., you know? Wait, so I'm, I'm just checking. Wait, this would have been 1980, yeah? I, I want to yeah. know what day it was. So give me a second. I'm going to see what... It was a Sunday. Okay, but still, it's a Sunday going into a Monday. Why are those kids not in bed? They've got school tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a school night. <laughs> yeah, come on. I know... I know you know, John, I know uh, John Houseman was an instrumental figure in Hollywood, but he's a very, very, very uh, irresponsible caretaker for these kids. He should be telling this story a few <laughs> hours early, Mr. Houseman, you yeah. know? <laughs> he's been keeping those kids. It's like the, uh, the bonfire at the beginning of Jaws, uh, except for that's a bunch of rowdy teenagers. And this is like small children and an old, old man. They should not be <laughs> hanging out together in the middle of the night. He closes out his story by telling them that when the fog returns, the men who are dead at the bottom of the sea will rise up and search for the campfire that led to their death. After this, we go to the local church and we get a John Carpenter cameo, which I can only remember seeing him in body bags outside of this as an actor. Mm -hmm. He he was Uh, in, uh, I can't remember, is this weird Italian movie? Okay, this is a deep cut. I can't remember the name of it, but um, what's his name? Dom DeLuise played a Hannibal Lecter-like character in it. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, I think John Carpenter played a flasher in it or something. It's very weird. It was in the 90s. Um, <laughs> he, pl- he played, I think his character name was The Gimp. I shit you not. I, uh, as you continue, <laughs> I, I, I will look for this. Uh I bet I bet he got a kick out of that <laughs> if that was indeed his character's name. <laughs> yeah. So the carpenter's working at a church. He's listening to Stevie Lane on the radio. Again, Stevie Wayne. By Wayne. Oh, Wayne, not Lane. Thank you. Played by Adrian Barbeau. As he's about to leave, the priest offers him some wine, but he declines. And as he's walking out the door, a uh, stone falls out of the wall onto the priest's desk. Um, I um, love... The way everything looks in this church, yeah. Um, this is where, like, this the nighttime establishing shots of the town are amazing too. But you get the Cundy flare, <laughs> you get the Dean Cundiness of all of this. 
uh, as the DP. And it's everything is so like stylized in the church. There's the shot when uh, John Carpenter is leaving the room and you see Hal Holbrook's shadow on the wall as he takes a shot of the wine or whiskey or whatever it is that he's drinking. Yeah. And it looks like something straight out of like Nosferatu or something. It's so good. It's yes, so good. that shadow shot was like intense. That yeah. shadow. <laughs> yeah. That shadow was just solid. And just letting you know, it was a film called Silence of the Hams. That sounds awful. And John Carpenter (laughs) played someone called Trench Court Man slash Gimp. And and Joe Dante was in it. That sounds like a flasher. Joe Dante was in it called Dying Man. So seek this film out. It is not good, but it is fucking bonkers. (laughs) There's got to be a joke somewhere that in another universe, John Carpenter invented the flasher genre. (laughs) Yay, there it is. Oh no! Then we, <laughs> know, we, know, we know what Michael has under his uh, overalls now, and I do not like it. Thank you for that, Sean. No. <laughs> the priest finds a journal that was hidden inside the wall. Um, the radio show tells us that it's the town's hundredth birthday, and so there's a big yeah. statue ceremony coming up soon. Um. Yeah, I what I don't know. What's your next note here, Josh? Um, we start seeing these establishing shots around the town, uh, of weird stuff happening. A gas pump falls off the hook and starts pumping gas all over the ground. A car lift raises up, and for a second I thought it was a reference to Christine, but that wouldn't happen for like another three years. Uh, but it made me happy that there's a Christine-type car in this. Uh, one shot, sorry, one that I really like at the gas station is when the lights of the gas station all flick on. Mm-hmm. You can tell Carpenter did that noise with some kind of synth setting yes. or something. So it's it just has this like Carpenter synth feel to a diegetic sound in the movie. One and, one thing that I love uh, about it as well is it's so good. It's so good the 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 whole ramp up, the whole sort of you know where the gas pump falls down. And and it's leaking, uh, you know, the gas and it, the the ting, the ding, ding, and it just continues. But I also love the little touch of the of the guy cleaning up in the shop. Now, it's just a beautiful. Speaking about the cuddly flare, where he just goes and he opens up a bottle, takes a drink, and puts it back. That little touches mm-hmm. like that, I love. And normally, I would think that's gross, but because it's shot so beautifully by Dean Cundy, I'm like, that is just great. Even though he's just taken a bottle of what orange juice taking this wig, put it back, which is just yucky. No one should ever do that, but <laughs> it is so good. It's the colors of the night and the sort of, as the opening goes, it's really strong. Like, yeah, especially with the Christine car and just the hydraulic pump just goes up. Oh, so good. So the, the church bells start ringing. All the cars turn their headlights on and start honking at the same time. Just like a cacophony of, noises going through this town right now i think that this look too is so uh tied into like my childhood and i remember seeing this movie and the i mean carpenter shot almost all of his movies uh widescreen anamorphic so they have this look to them there's a consistency across his most of his filmography for this look that people started tapping into um, later. I mean, you see things like Super 8 or The Guest, where 
it's visual shorthand now. Like it puts you right back in that. I know we've overused it, but it's in that cozy realm. Yeah. It puts you like that nostalgic. You're going to see this kind of exciting adventure kind of movie, um, probably with some spooks and maybe a little bit of heart to it. Like, you know what you're getting when you see that look yeah. very specifically. It, it basically the same sort of vibe you get with, well, Spielberg and it's the whole sort of thing that the success of Stranger Things is based on. But I think mm-hmm. corpses tend to get overlooked in the sort of the, the reemergence of the sort of stuff sometimes that, yeah, you get films, it, it, they, don't, they tend to go for like, oh, yeah, it has that Spielberg touch, it has that sort of 80s vibe, but it's really carpenter where you get these sort of throwbacks to Halloween, throwbacks to obviously the fog and, and, and his sort of visual styling, which is it's the reason why it's coming back because it's so good. Well, and one thing I didn't say about that 12-year run that he had when you brought it up earlier is that not only was he just putting out great movies, but he was putting out movies that would be future templates mm. for countless other movies to then copy and mimic. Yeah. And so it was more than just... um, He affected the entire scene. It wasn't just him doing his own thing. So many directors after him have been... um inspired by him one way or another stylistically or especially now with the amount of synth music that's happening in movies and that whole synth wave coming back and Carpenter's been doing that shit for 40 years you know yeah. and, and I love the sort of I think what I think more like is like admirable about admirable about him as well is uh, he has that famous uh, well I'm, I'm gonna paraphrase it but that quote where he says in uh, in England he's an author in France, he's a visionary, and in America, he's a bum, and right. which sort of grounds him in that he 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 doesn't have any airs about himself. He knows that he's just there to make movies, and even himself, he doesn't understand how influential his twelve-year run, and even like his involvement in like with you know synth music and also uh, in in the templates, like you said, he's making. He is influential, but still, he's a guy who doesn't take himself seriously. He doesn't like blowing smoke off his own ass and that's really like rare for someone at that sort of power who like you know Spielberg's a good director but he knows his influence and he knows like he he has equal um, influential sort of you know hold over movies but I don't think Spielberg will ever call himself a bum right well yeah I think it says a lot that Carpenter never took his Oscar shot or anything like that (laughs) He never tried to make that prestige art film that would try to win him awards. Yeah. He was always doing his own thing. Yeah. Uh, I think you have to give uh, Cundy the credit, too, with, for the, the throwback kind of stuff that we're seeing now. Because not only did he work with Carpenter, uh, this is the guy who shot both Hook and Jurassic Park. He shot all the Back to the Future movies. He shot Romancing the Stone with Zemeckis as well. Um, he shot Roadhouse. Uh, he shot Death Becomes Her. Like, there's so many things that this that Dean Cundy had his hands on that kind of defined the the 80s through the 90s. And the Cundy Yeah, yeah. And now he's one of the most sought out uh, DPs around. I think he was on. Was it Bond or Mission Impossible? He was, he was on some a bunch of those, and it seems like he's one of the, the top dogs. 
Yeah. Um, are, are you thinking of, um, oh, uh, God, I should remember off the top of my head because I don't think that Kundi's ever shot a, a Bond. Um, so who is, I don't know. <laughs> um, oh, Roger Deakins. This is going to kill us. Hold on. Ah, uh, yes, I, I think I'm thinking of Deakins. Deakins. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, Deakins. Yes, Deakins solid as well. He's, he he brings his own sort of style and sensibility to what he runs. And is it Dante's? Uh, who's Michael Mann's guy? Spinati. Yeah, Michael Mann's guy. He's another one that he's helped shape all the movies and. and uh, and, and sort of templates for films to come that have been in the man style. And I'll be honest, like my three go-to directors that if I ever want to work on a project or something that, you know, that I look up to in terms of talent are Mann, Carpenter, you know, Michael Mann, John Carpenter, and uh, William Friedkin. Then oh, okay, yeah. just sort of like, like if, if I had an aesthetic or like a mood board or anything like that, it'll be the works of them three that I'm like, I like those things and you know the cinematographers to work with what what's pulling you with friedkin outside of the exorcist because he's a director that sorcerer. i'm not really that connected to sorcerer i love that movie i still haven't seen it i've meant to watch it for months now because you told me to it is it's one that just crept up on me uh, it's one that i remember uh, it, like a couple of years ago it came on tv and people were saying watch it watch it and i never and this is a film that i've only watched about two three months ago but my intensity and love that i have for sorcerer is insane because it was one that i just put on the tv and it you, you ever seen one of those films where you know you're just watching it then an hour or half an hour in you are forward intense and I, i'm glued to the screen and i can't look away that's what sorcerer did to me and it is whenever whenever i describe the plot to anyone they're like really it's just about trucks going 100 miles from one place to another but there's so much more to it it is just amazing so yeah that, that it's it, but there's also to live and die in la which sort of is in like symbiotic or response to the miami vice thing that michael mann was doing so yeah that, that's where i get oh and also french connection by friedkin i haven't seen any of those i recommend them i recommend them all have you seen the later stage stuff or like Bug or Killer Joe? Yeah, I've seen Killer Joe. That's messed up. Yeah, <laughs> that's Bug not... was Bug was something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love. Um, oh God, what's his face? Michael Shannon is. He kind of at first when I first saw him in Kangaroo Jack, that was my introduction to him. I was like, this guy's kind of weird looking. I don't know <laughs> if I like him that much. And then when I saw him in Take Shelter. That was that was the turning point where I was like, oh no, this guy's fucking awesome, incredible actor. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know who else is an awesome, incredible actor? Tom Atkins. Yes. Who is driving in his truck, listening to uh, Stevie's show on the radio, and this is like the sultry Adrian Barbeau line. She goes, "Even if you do have something to do, keep me turned on for a while, and I'll try to do the same for you." And Tom Atkins shrugs and is like. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> which is the most Tom Atkins thing to say, and he is. Oh man, I love this guy so much because it's also whenever you watch any interviews with him, he seems like a real deal. He seems like a guy who's like, I guess I'm a, I'm a like a Hollywood actor that people love. Okay, then I guess you know that's me, and he just seems <laughs> such like a nice guy. <laughs> it's insane. Tom Atkins has 
my body type, which feels good to have represented, or just like (laughs) portly guys, you know, just kind of thick all over is how I would look at myself. But I probably have more of a belly than he does in this. Is but was anyone else disturbed by his lack of mustache in this? Yeah, I was like, (laughs) he. I think they need to do the reverse thing that they did for Henry Cavill in Justice League. (laughs) (laughs) He needs that stash. Who does Tom Atkins pick up? His name is Nick, by the way. Nick Castle. Uh, It's yes, (laughs) Nick Castle. What a name, huh? He's the shape. That's the guy who played the shape. Yeah. The guy in the original. I didn't even. I didn't even. I didn't even pick up on that. No, because this film is full of it. I'm glad you mentioned it because. We've got Nick Castle, who played the shape, yes. who also... And, and the thing is, it also mentioned the Coupe de Ville, who is John Carpenter's band. Yep. There's so many in-jokes in or nudges, you know, winks in this movie, because we've got Dan o, well, Charles Cyphers, who is the weatherman. His character's name is Dan O'Bannon, who wrote Darkstar slash Alien. We've got Buck Flowers, who, you know, in uh, uh, John Carpenter's go-to drunk guy. He, play, he plays a character called Tommy Wallace, who did who directed Season of the Witch. So there's many, I'm like, it, it, it gets egregious, I'm being honest, but in a good way. <laughs> like, there's so many nods to his mates, like his friends' names, and, and so many, like, he names his own, he puts his own band in the film, and I'm like, you do you, John Carpenter, I am loving this. The, uh, the producer from his TV film gets name-checked uh, by Mrs. Colbritz, yeah. the it was I think Richard Colbritz I think was the uh, the producer, and so that becomes the babysitter. Um, Nancy Keys from Halloween is in it, yeah, and her three I guess her three film run because she's in Halloween, Halloween two, and then Halloween three as a middle aged mother for some reason with with gray cornstarch in her hair or whatever. Which is my man. Tom Atkins. Yes. Uh, the fact that Tom Atkins is a middle-aged man and Jamie Lee Curtis is practically a teenager in this yeah, was a little off-putting. This is like, what, like a spring-winter romance, but like 10 years apart. Like, they're, like, they're like 20. It's like 23 years difference, I think. Exactly. And What? Yeah. Really? Yes. Because yeah, I think I had to, again. I had to do... Well, that changes how I view this movie. <laughs> yeah, you get some serious uh, season of the witch vibes here because yeah, like... I'm a little concerned about watching Halloween three again. Um, but, because... <laughs> just Tom Atkins being an old guy picking up ladies left, right, center. Tom Atkins was born in 1935, <laughs> and uh... so he's 40s. 43, 44 at the time of this production. Yeah. And Jamie Lee Curtis was born in 58. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a gap. That's sizable. And speaking yep. of Tom Atkins, I'm pretty sure um, his, his wife was one of the, you, you know, in the season of The Witch, the, the TV zap lady, the one who gets the, that was his mm-hmm. wife at the time, um, who got turned into a bunch of bugs. So yeah. <laughs> Very oh, the, the one still that's still just talking about Halloween <laughs> 3 makes me laugh. <laughs> if there's ever a film that needs to be rebooted, I, I would love to see a reboot of Halloween 3, but like with 
actually chuck Michael Myers <laughs> in there, but have him as a secondary character of like, what the fuck is going on here? Like that silver shamrock mask and uh, Stonehenge, and then Michael Myers chucked in in like, like he's com- actually put Michael Myers in the Tom Atkins role as the Doctor trying to uncover it all. <laughs> wow. Michael Myers, the detective trying to solve a case. Yeah, like imagine Michael Myers swigging beer one after another through his mask and it's not going through. <laughs> well, yeah, Tom Atkins is casually drinking a beer as he's driving down the highway. I think it's a character choice it's for just, all his characters. It's just different time, man. Uh, yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis, he picks her up. She's a... Uh, just a young woman traveling up the coast, heading towards Vancouver or something like that. Um, Dan, the weatherman, says that there's a, there's a big party tonight. Um, but again, it starts at midnight, I think. Um, I love this town. I love San Antonio. It's wild. Uh, let's see. Is this where Dan's, Dan tells her that there's a fog bank coming and she reaches out to the fishing boat? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she tries. Uh... So Stevie announces that yeah, there's a fog bank out there. One of the fishers like, "Ain't no fog bank out which there." Which is George. Hey, Buck there's Flowers. a fog bank out there. <laughs> which is George <laughs> Buck Flowers, who is a legend. And <laughs> any even when he just says, "Ain't no fo- a fog bank out there," I could I could have him reading the telephone, you know, the yellow pages, and it'd be entertaining. He's he's just brilliant <laughs> to watch. I like hanging out with these fishermen. As they're just listening to smooth jazz on the radio with this red lighting on the boat, and they're just all kind of lounging around, drinking beers. It it has that cozy boat vibe of like the the jaws scene when they're sharing their their scars with each other. Yeah, this is the boat next to those guys. <laughs> so, um, we get oh the the windows blow out in um. Nick's truck, which causes Jamie Lee Curtis to spill the beer that they're sharing, <laughs> which I love. She's like, oh no, I spilled my beer. These people are not nearly freaked out enough by the activities that are happening around them, I think. I got a feeling No, that- later on a, a cabinet explodes next to Jamie Lee Curtis and she does not seem terrified by it in the slightest. Oh, God, I love this movie, but I'm pretty sure like, Tom Atkins is more worried about the spilled beer than the broken glass. Yes. Uh, when the fog starts creeping into the boat, uh, it just looks so cool. I love the yeah. like the primary color the lighting. Pool. Yeah, it's all blue. The boat was like bathed in red, and then the blue washes over it. Uh, the guys head out on the deck, and they see nothing, 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 and then an old-fashioned ship, giant sailing ship, go go past them i love this shot it like, looks so cool and josh it makes me we're, we're, we have to talk master and commander at some point for this <laughs> okay. show because that's one of my all-time favorite movies and this just seeing this shot alone made me want to go back and watch that movie again for the 25th time probably you know i would watch master of commander but i gotta pick between the least of two evils I have seen that movie and I fucking love it. It is so good. I love how hard those guys laugh at that dinner yeah. table. When they laugh at jokes, they laugh like it's the funniest fucking thing anyone has it ever seen. It makes me laugh. It makes me laugh because they're laughing. 
because it seems such you know i'm like yeah i'll laugh with you it's, this is the ultimate dad joke and i love it it's great oh all right umar we'll get you back on sometime next year yeah sure after all the holiday <laughs> stuff and we'll we'll talk master and commander and something else yeah master and commander and i don't know knowing my track record something like a clockwork orange <laughs> I all right. Moment of shame for me. Never seen a Clockwork Orange. You're not missing much. Um, that's controversial. Really? I know, but it's probably because I watched it when I was way too young, and I've processed it, and I'm done with it. If you know what I mean, like it was. I think I mentioned it to George. It was like my sort of foyer into horror movies. It is good. It is a good movie. But I think me personally, I was like 12 when I watched it, and I spent like maybe four years of like processing it and going through it of like. I was way too young to watch a Clockwork Orange. I should have watched fucking Shining or anything other than this because Clockwork Orange is way too much for a 12-year-old. But then... Yeah, there's some brutal stuff in it, right? Very oh, yeah. brutal. It does not relent. And But the thing is, you know, because I think I also mentioned it to George where uh, how it was advertised on TV because obviously it was banned for 30 years. I just saw the advert as an impressionable 12-year-old. It was banned for 30 years going to be shown at 12 o'clock on here i was like oh i'm recording that i'm like oh no why did i record that <laughs> so when i say you're not missing much it probably would be good to watch it for the first time but it is brutal it's kind of like the dead man's shoes sort of thing so if you want to put yourself through it you can it's your call <laughs> yeah yeah fair enough i mean every once so i was just i've been talking about um enter the void Gaspar No oh, yeah. movie that I just watched recently and I, I want I want to talk about it with people, but I don't want to make anyone watch it at the same time. Is that the sort of Lovecraftian one? Uh, oh no, that's Enter the, the Void, void. is like it's all the void. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Enter the Void, yeah, it takes place in Japan and it's basically entirely in first person and it's pretty long movie and it's about psychedelic drugs and death and well, it, it it's a tough movie to watch, but really, really good. As all Gaspar knows, Climax was really cool. That's a dance movie. Irreversible. I've told Josh I want to see like the first twenty minutes of Irreversible oh, again, and then turn it off and never watch any more of yeah, it. Yeah, that is a brutal film, man. Right. Yeah. yeah. Rough. But hey, we're talking uh, about John Carpenter that... thing. We, we're done with the first part of the show. We're done with the depressing stuff. Go back to um, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, these guys. <laughs> this is. Uh oh yeah, so fun. Uh we get some really brutal deaths here as one guy gets stabbed through the back with a sword that comes out his chest. Another guy gets lifted by a hook. The hook as a weapon it is like the gnarliest kills in this movie, I think, for me. Cause just a hook is not a good weapon. It's not gonna kill you fast. Maybe this it just candy looks man like it hurts five a lot. times in the mirror, and that's why I what if Candyman was a part of the crew? <laughs> Of the of the oh what's it called of Blake's crew Candyman was was up there with the hook and just bang oh but yeah you're right hooks are they remind me of um you, you know in the uh, the first Halloween when uh, Michael kills Bob when he just yeah yeah it's like that it's like like that's why he attaches him to the door yeah it's like that sort of vibe where yeah. like that's the job for like obviously like he just uses him literally as a hook but he uses a knife to like just put him up there i always think of um the poor woman in texas chainsaw who gets lifted yes and yeah. just, I, I still have no idea yes i have no idea how they pulled that gag off because she has like a bare back like she's wearing like a almost a swimsuit as a as a top or something 
And so her entire back is bare. And then they just like hang her right on that hook. Yeah. And I can feel it like in my ribs right now, like the, in the back of them. Ugh. Yeah. It is uh, insane. Uh, I like my favorite shot of the movie coming up right here. Uh, there's a guy it's after two guys on the boat have been killed. And there's a guy in the, the pilot's cap, the captain's cabin, I think. And he's standing there, and behind him, you see the long hallway yeah. of the ship. Uh-huh. And this light with the fog, this light comes up, and you just see the silhouette. And I love the silhouetting on the pirates throughout this movie. Oh, so yeah, close. because they just, they look like literal shapes. And something about the void that they are, of just this black silhouette that's coming for you. This shot, as it's coming down the hall to get this guy, is genuinely scary. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Like yeah, that's like the first full proper introduction of Blake and his crew because obviously, like you mentioned, the other two, other three, or the other two guys who died, it was quick cuts and you just see like a hook and you see a blade, very brutal, very <laughs> not PG, but done very <laughs> well. And then this is yeah, it's very it's like, it's like that that foreboding dread that you know something's gonna happen. But it's just that long way. It feels like an eternity when you see him just like the long hallway and it's done so well. And then he grabs some kind of spike thing and shoves it into the dude's face repeatedly. <laughs> like, what a way to get brought down. Yeah. At least a hook is a weapon. This spike thing, I don't know what it is uh, that he's grabbed, but he like gouges out the, the dude's eyes with it. That, that looked like it was like a like a prison shanking more than anything yeah like bang 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 over and over again uh nearly as gross is what we catch next which is tom atkins and uh jamie lee curtis making pillow talk Ugh. <laughs> i'm just again this is the second week in a row josh that we've talked about a carpenter movie and this is the second week in a row that he's like and the audience doesn't give a shit about their relationship. Just cut to them waking up in bed the next day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, uh, we find out their names because they just now find out each other's names, which I think <laughs> they, is hilarious. They fuck first and then, then exchange pleasantries. It was a different so time. <laughs> yes. Nick and Elizabeth, uh, and they're interrupted by one of the, the creepy, okay, so, are they pirates? Are they lepers? Are they zombies? Are they ghosts? What What are our creatures here? Yes. Got it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. But also, <laughs> on top of all of that, they are yes. extremely polite. Yes, Knocking they knock. on the door. Okay. I... The rules of the doors in the, the Fog universe <laughs> confused me. The because it's like, will. <laughs> if... It seems like if you have an exterior door that leads outside, they have to knock, like vampire rules. They have to gain permission to come inside. But once they're inside, any interior door seems to be fair game, and they can just smash those willy-nilly, you know? <laughs> Do you know what I think would be useful? Or there's a deleted scene of, you know, the part that you're alluding to where, where the kid's door gets smashed in? <laughs> when he's knocking first, uh, on the other side of the door in the hallway there's just a bunch of the lepers slash, slash pirates slash zombies going through a rule book and just talking among themselves saying can we yeah sure okay you know we can smash this one in there you go and smash it in smash it in i would like yeah i'd like there to be a scene when the priest is reading the journal and he's like 
The rules of the door? What does that mean? <laughs> oh, it's too long. I'm not going to read it. <laughs> uh, someone with a hook is outside. Um, right as Tom Atkins is about to open the door, his, the, the clock face on his house breaks inside his house. And because it's 1 a.m., and as Stevie says, it's now the end of the witching hour. So Nick barely survives this scene. I was going to say that this is, um, yeah, never mind the rules of, of, of the knocking, but it's, uh, it, it, what was it? it was very, like, um, interesting of why were they going for him? Again, uh, these are, like, criticism or negative because obviously they want the descendants of the people. So it's like, had Nick been there for a long time? Is he... Again, I like I like films that don't give you exposition or give you the answer. You know, there right. is some in this movie, but it's like, wait, they were after Nick, but then maybe they were after, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 Jamie Lee Curtis's character or not. So, so you don't really know what the, what the stuff's going on. So I, I do like it. The sort of, and then at one o'clock they go back and they don't. I'm clocking out as well. That, that was another, another interesting thing that I love. Right? The, the ghosts have a, they get paid by the hour. Yeah, but again, if something just shatters in my house randomly, I'm going to be pretty freaked out. This is now his car window has shattered and his clock is shattered, and he's still just like, oh, must be the weather. <laughs> I don't know. Like, like... Tom Atkins, <laughs> he's, he's always so plausy. Like, even like we talk about with... Uh, Halloween 3. If any of those things happened to me, I would not react how you were, Tom, but kudos to you, right. you mad bastard. You, you, you're taking it in your stride. Everything's fine. It's okay. Just roll with it. <laughs> also, yeah, we'll see later that nothing seems to affect this man. <laughs> He's in some shit. The next... And <laughs> doesn't care. A kid is running around on the beach and sees something shiny in the rocks. Uh, the waves are crashing over it. It looks like a piece of gold. But when another wave crashes on top of it, it's a piece of wood that says Dane on it. Uh, um, I love Adrian Barbeau as much as the next guy, or perhaps more. But Stevie Wayne is a horrible mother. <laughs> Her kid is out past midnight with a creepy old fisherman. <laughs> hanging out on the beach. And then the next day, he's out. Like, I don't know if it's high tide, low tide, what time it is. But that kid could get swept out to sea. He's like seven or six. It's ridiculous. There's a great shot now uh, as the kid's running from the beach. And this is more like Carpenter. Every once in a while, he just wants to show you how talented he is, I think. So it's a shot of the kid running from the beach with his beautiful score. We pan through the house to kind of get some information on the, on the family, and then the kid comes running in the hallway. Yeah. And it's just one of those yep. shots where you get three different compositions in one camera movement. Yeah. It, it, it was something that it reminded me of... Um, oh, is, it the, is it Deep Impact, the, the, the infamous... Mirror shot, one of those ones. I can't remember which one it is. Uh, oh, contact. Oh, uh, no, no, no. I, contact, contact that's yeah. The one. Yeah, so it reminded me of that where just in one movement, it, it reveals so much information. Uh, and it's a weird, the house is an interesting layout as well because I thought that was a reflection initially when he was in the hallway. 
like it looked kind oh, yeah. of like a like a mirror to me, which yeah. doubly confused me. Which is really yeah, like he hit the nail on the head there. Like shows his talent of like why he is considered an author at least in England, I guess. Josh Umar, could one of you please interpret this next part for me? The kid asks his mom for breakfast for a stomach pounder and a coke. I guess what the hell is a stomach pounder? I assumed it was a burger, and yeah. didn't she say like? But no. <laughs> For lunch, she says, I think, or something. She says after lunch, which I'm like... Uh, yeah, after lunch. Yeah, at first I, I thought, I'm like, is that a burger and a Coke? And then maybe it's a candy? Like a, like a Pop Rocks or something? If you type in stomach pounder in Google, the first question, which I'm pretty sure you put in there, Sean, is what's a stomach pounder? The fog. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a thick drink, it's, apparently. <laughs> Is is this a soft so wait, he chainsaw wants a thick drink and a coke? Uh, wait, wait. He said, wait, actually, the first answer is there isn't really an answer to this. <laughs> it's basically this is John Carpenter just fucking with I us. Think so. No, I think so. And, and then, this is another instance where John Carpenter is just like, ah, I don't care, whatever. It's in the script. No, absolutely, it says here. John Carpenter said it was a joke, but he's gone. People are still talking about it. We got played. We got played. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it! Uh, this is why we love the guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> uh, the whole interaction between them, though, I do think is adorable. This kid. Um, you know, we can be tough on kid actors, but I, I like the way this kid pulls, yeah. pulls this off. He seems cute and charming. And then later when he's in danger, he's not annoying and shrill. He actually yeah. seems like he's in danger. Yeah. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good with him. I thought this kid might be on tranquilizers at some scenes because at one point when he's in the truck with Tom Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis and she's driving and the fog is approaching them, and it's like pulling up on them, so she slams it in reverse. Tom Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis are like wide-eyed looking around. All The kid looks like he's been on set for 14 hours, and he's just dead tired, because he just is like slumped in the middle with no expression on his face whatsoever. Uh, uh, yeah. Is this where so, uh, Nick and Elizabeth go to the marina? Yeah, so t Tom Atkins goes to the dock because he's worried that um, his friend didn't return on the boat. He said he's a good enough sailor that he would at the very least send a message in. Uh, my next note is, is she driving a VW thing? Is she? Oh. That's, that's the car. Yeah. That red car. Is, is that what that is? I'm pretty sure that's a thing. Which, okay. again, if you the next movie. think of all the in-jokes in that yeah. Carpenter is doing... There's a thing in this movie. Yeah. I get it. Yes. I like yes. it. That prankster. Uh, we meet Jamie Lee Curtis's mom, uh, Janet Leigh, as Kathy Williams. Is she the town mayor? Is she a chair? What is no, she? She said she's like a chairperson later on. She says like chairman of the committee or some something like that. But So I guess... Not the mayor, but is the mayor. This woman seems to have seriously inflated her importance in this town <laughs> because her husband is now missing out at sea 
and yet she's still worried about a statue unveiling that's happening at midnight on a Monday. <laughs> and she has an assistant. She has a woman who follows her around and hangs on her every word and preps her life for her. That's why I thought she had to be more than just a chairperson. No, I think uh, I have no idea. But Okay. One thing that really confuses me is that uh, they say that the ship was last seen 15 miles east of Spivey Point, mm -hmm. but this takes place in California, so if you go east, you're on land. Ah. Well, that, that boat was in really big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I noticed some really beautiful lens flares during all the driving scenes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just really cool looking. Once again, it's an entirely different uh, countryside than what we saw in the last movie, but I, he makes really good use of it here, I feel like. Just gives you such a good vibe for the area. Yeah, he, he, he really gets the most out of wherever it was filmed, but, you know, wherever it plays San Antonio, it, you know, I don't want to use the word again, but it is, it is cozy. It is a cozy place, and it is, a place that you would want to be for a you know a century celebration. It looks like a nice little, but also as well as cozy because of the things that we mentioned, where where there's midnight fishermen talking to kids about horror stories. It's very kooky, <laughs> but a very like friendly sort of kooky place. Like like if there, it's, it's kind of reminds you like you know like there could be a sort of like an eerie Indiana sort of TV show, but call it San Antonio because this place is just weird, even without the ghosts. Antonio Bay. Antonio Bay. Antonio, I sound like I'm calling San Antonio. So is that a real place? Is that a real place? <laughs> yes. No wonder. It's in Texas. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, yeah. No wonder. <laughs> thank you for correcting me. Yeah. I don't. I don't think Antonio Bay exists. This to me looks like it's shot near Bodega Bay or something like that. Somewhere near where uh, the birds was shot would be my guess. Uh, you say that this is a kooky town. It definitely is because the ladies go to the church. And Father Malone seems to be hiding in the shadows, just waiting to pop out to jump scare these women. So, so this whole town is, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, the TV show League of Gentlemen. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this town feels like the American version of it. Where it's I can see just that. Just weird people, weird characters. Um, if, if you don't know, it, 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 again, it's based in the sort of Yorkshire area. And it's just uh, like a sketch show full of weird and very, very sort of David Lynch level weird characters in there. I, I can't go much into it other than it really worth seeking out. But <laughs> to me, it's always been like Antonio Bay is, is, is like the, just because of these weird people. They're just like, like you said, there's a woman who thinks she's the mayor, but she isn't. <laughs> and then we've also got like a, a priest who loves to jump out of his, uh, his people in his parish. <laughs> Like it's it's so weird, but I love it's it. Like, it's not quite Twin Peaks weird, but it's it's on that path. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, the next part we're gonna cross cut with two different scenes here. We have the priest who's reading from the journal of his grandfather, and we get the backstory of who Blake was. Mm. Blake was a man who had leprosy. He established a colony for other lepers, and he was rich, and um, he wants to move the lepers to set up a new colony, I think, and this is why he needed to get them all on a boat. Yeah, so yeah, like, and like no, he no place would accept them. Yeah, 
You just want to move down the road, basically. Uh, so, but uh, Father Malone's grandfather and some of the other townies uh, knew that he was rich and wanted to steal his money. And so what they did was they set up like a, a, a diversionary lighthouse. Or they used a campfire in order to trick the boat into crashing. I'm not quite sure how that worked. I'm not either, but I really like the sort of subversion of the, the campfire tale, mm-hmm. which I, I really think is really effective in this uh, story where it, it reminds me of uh, in The Simpsons, um, uh, Jebediah Springfield. So of like yeah. he was our hero, oh, yeah, he totally. was our hero. But then when you hear the truth, I, and even just watching it yesterday, I was like, oh yeah, this is why I really, really, really like this movie because of this sort of this little switch that it does halfway through the movie. And I really love how Hal uh, uh, Hal Holbrook is it? Is it, is it Hal Holbrook? Yep. Yeah. How how he portrays uh, Father Malone as his real realization of like you know his belief and everything has been shaken to the core. And I'm like. Yeah, I am totally on board for this. Yeah, I'd love that. That Simpsons poll is great because the priest says tonight we're going to celebrate for honoring murderers, which is a great. So line. while he's giving that whole speech, we have Tom Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis being crosscut with this. They are exploring the boat. Um, everything, all the dials and gauges seem to be broken. Atkins says that the thermometer is stuck at twenty degrees. It's um this there's a really funny moment here where um Jamie Lee Curtis goes, Oh, they were drinking a lot of beer. He goes, They drink a lot of beer every night. And she asks him, What's it like? And he goes, Oh, the same every time. The room starts spinning. <laughs> she's like, No, what's it like to be a fisherman? Um And it's also like he yeah, has to drink the beer to get salt water. I just think Tom, you just wanted some more beer. That went in the script. <laughs> <laughs> also, just to sip like a couple day old warm beer that's just been sitting been out. Sitting so out. Gross. Uh, Atkins says that he doesn't believe in luck or much of anything. His dad was a fisherman. One time he saw a boat headed right for him. They boarded the boat. There was nobody on. The food was fresh. The coffee was hot. But the cup was rusted and stuck to the table. Uh, they found a gold coin and put it in his pocket. Yet, when the dad got home, the gold coin was gone. And this is where that cabinet, as he's telling the story, explodes next to Jamie Lee Curtis, and she laughs it off. Yeah. But yeah, then... it's like a locker explodes in her face. And so, get, do you guys agree with me? Most of their scene could have not happened at all. Like... We get a little bit of exposition in it, and then we get what's going to happen. But the intercutting, I'm like, the stuff at the church is way more interesting. Yeah. When he's like detailing the story and everyone's reacting to it, I'm like, I'm like, I want more of that. Don't don't like cut the tension by going back to this little cutesy thing that's happening. Like, I w- I want the dark history of the town. Yeah, especially because it's the priest is learning it about his own family. His own blood lineage yeah, who, was involved in this. Who also was a priest. Because he was like, yeah. I, I like that there's a family of priests. I'm not quite sure how that works, but. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> but it's, but it's like, they ended, like, even though I like the button at the end of the priest, you know, 
we're, we're honoring uh, a bunch of murderers. It would have been better, like you said, with that being explored more with, uh, you know, Janet Lee doing basically, she, she is the, uh, the reason why we think she's the mayor, because she's basically the mayor of Jaws. Yeah. She wants to go ahead with the celebration no matter what. And that would have been great, that sort of unpacking that. But yeah, it's a sort of the cutesy scene and with the jump cut at the end. Yeah. And I, you know, I was like, I get it. I guess it was to put a scare in, but wasn't really needed. Yeah, I agree with that. It was just there, I guess. That's, uh, I like the, the fact that her husband is missing. Her town is falling apart in one night, essentially. Uh, I mean, even as just a resident, you'd have to be freaked out. She seems pretty cool with everything that's happening. Yeah, Janet Lee, she, well, no, I was going to say she survived me, uh, you know, be, uh, the <laughs> Norman Bates. Uh, no, she did no, not. No, I'm she didn't, no. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. But uh, I, I guess it's, <laughs> it's just like, I bet anything... If there was a prequel to The Fog, which I hope there never is, it would just be the same sort of crazy shit that happens in the town. I don't think this is the 100-year anniversary. I just think this sort of shit happens in the town all the time. You're just used to it. <laughs> oh, yeah, all the cars turned on at 12 o'clock. Oh, 12 o'clock? Normally it's at 3 o'clock, but okay, that's fine. <laughs> this is the most nonplussed uh, civilization in the world. Yep. Yeah. Stevie's on her way back to the lighthouse. This is where we get that shot of about 150 stairs that she has to go up and down to get there. Which I love. She's, she's listening to promo buffers? Or are those... Is that what broadcasts when she's not at the radio? It's just constant looping of those buffers? I couldn't I, tell. I think she's listening to promo buffers because she has like a, like a mini... Like a tape deck. And then that's where the water comes in and it ends. But it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah, okay. It does. It doesn't really explain what's being played while she's not there, which I would assume just be like continual music. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So she puts the wood on top of that stack of tapes. The wood changes from saying Dane to Six Must Die, and water starts to leak through it. I love this effect. Yeah. I don't know how they did this. How they got water to push through the wood like that, but it looks so cool. Yeah, and. It was was a special effects guy in this uh, Botine, Rob Botine. I think. Rob Botine, yeah. I think that's why. Oh, this was. Yeah, he ah. is that good, and I'm pretty sure he played Blake, didn't he? Like you know the the shadow of Blake, like the figure. I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure it was him. Again, you'll have to check it or whatever, but um, I think that's why they were able to put water out of the wash uh, out of the wood. Because Rob Bottin, he's a genius. <laughs> he was able to do it. That's unfortunate how short he seemingly cut his own career. I, I, it seems like there's a bit of a mystery story mm. with him. Because, yeah, to go from The Thing and doing one of the all-time great makeup jobs, I don't think he worked for another, for more than like 10 years after that. Oh, no, he worked. No, he, he was on Game of Thrones. Yeah. Did he? I yeah. thought he... I thought he cut his career really early. No, I think um, he had a bit of a like a tenure between, like, Fight Club and you know the other sort of films he did, and sort of stopped for about ten years, and then mm. did Game of Thrones. But yeah, he yeah. he he hit some. He did some amazing okay, stuff. Okay, I didn't know that he was still going. Well, that's good to hear. 
But yeah, it just this, because uh, also as well as Bortin, obviously we've got the iconic thing in the, in the thing, the stuff that he did in there. But also his design of Robocop, Total Recall, and what was the other one? Seven. Uh, the Howling. For- oh yeah, Howling as well, but also like Seven, like the weird yes. gross shit he, in yeah, Seven. Yeah, the stuff. It, his, his, his like array of work is just insane. Yeah, that's um, he's in he's in my head for the Howling because we we just watched a whole bunch of werewolf movies, studying up, in like between the Howling and an American uh, werewolf, like we're never gonna top the, a transformation scene. No, like it's just not gonna happen, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, it's it, they they both pioneered and perfected it at the same time. Yep. There's no oh. room left for the rest of us. No. Um, we go back. Nick and Elizabeth are in the autopsy room. As you... I forgot that there was a body. After the cabinet explodes, a body falls onto Elizabeth like it's out of uh, Clue when the body falls out of the, <laughs> the, the kitchen cabinet. <laughs> Why are they in the autopsy room? Why, could you imagine being a 20-year-old woman Hooking up with this guy, investigating a ghost ship. Now you're in an autopsy room. This is all happening like 24 hours. She should be in Toronto, wherever she wanted to go to by now. She should be out of here. She has no reason to be here. But it's also, I love that the coroner is um, the guy who plays Napoleon Wilson in uh, in uh, Assault on Precinct 13, which is like you know one of the reasons when, when I said, when I was watching The Fog, I was like, oh shit, it's him from that movie and him from... And, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think, unfortunately, if I remember correctly, he, he died soon after because obviously, I think he had cancer or something like that. But, which, oh. Because when you look at him in uh, Assault on Precinct 13, which is about four, four years before uh, The Fog, he, it looks like he ages rapidly. But obviously, when you look at what subsequently happens, you know, tragedy, but I really enjoyed his performance in this. Like the sort of no nonsense coroner that he is. Yeah, he as the coroner, he says that the guy's wounds are covered in algae. He looks like it has been underwater for months, even though the body was dry. Mm. Uh, the body starts moving as the coroner and Tom Atkins are talking. Elizabeth is alone in the room. It grabs a scalpel. It moves towards like Elizabeth. It looks like it's going to stab her but it seemingly misses and carves a three on the floor. This is very hard to do. Is also confusing because this is the only time we see reanimation in this movie. Is that yeah. correct? Well, I mean, except for unless you count the, the leper guys. Yeah. Technically but I don't reanimated. know what they are. But this was just a town citizen. That's yes. now. Yeah. Uh, well, Anyway, after this, we get some transition shots as the sun is setting. And my god, these shots with the foghorn playing yeah. are beautiful. Mm-hmm. The, that night, the centennial celebration, uh, Mrs. Williams has been told that her husband is presumed dead. Uh, but she's still going to speak at the celebration. <laughs> she's... She's torn up, but not that much. Uh, over the radio, Stevie announces that the boat, the seagrass, I think is the name of the boat, was discovered. Um, and Nick 
calls into the station to ask her about the fog uh, because she said she could see it the night before moving against the wind and that it was glowing. Uh, and once again, the fog is creeping across the town and Stevie has the perfect vantage point from her, her lighthouse, her lighthouse radio station, which is awesome. Yeah. Like, come on. It's like having a tree for it. <laughs> I, I'm being honest, I'm pretty sure Stevie's like the antagonist, no, not antagonist, sorry, protagonist of the, because I love her sort of story and she does, she gets shit way more done by Tom than Tom Atkins. Like, she manages yes. to save her son. Okay, fair enough. He runs in, smashes the glass and all that stuff, but she, it, like, pretty much saves a lot of people's lives by telling them which road is clear, where to go, and all this stuff. She's fucking badass <laughs> in this yep. movie. A terrible She's mother, seemingly... terrible mother. But badass in what she does. This lighthouse seemingly gives her the power of omnipotence and omnipresence because the amount of detail she's able to give of the exact intersections that the fog is at and which way you need to go is incredible. Yeah, like Blake has no chance against Stevie. <laughs> no chance at all. Uh, so after this, Stevie gets on the phone with Dan, the weatherman, telling him that the fog is glowing. Dan dismisses her and says she's on drugs, calls her sweetheart twice, and <laughs> dismisses her warning altogether. The place gets surrounded by fog. She warns Dan to stay on the phone, don't go. Dan doesn't care, opens the door, and gets hooked in the neck, and makes like a uh, uh, sound. <laughs> this is a great this kill. This is probably my favorite kill, because of the, like, the filming and the sort of the, the, like the overload of color and fog is just like whoa because if i remember correctly like it pulls back and it's like a like not like a long well kind of like a long shot and it just lets it linger of him just getting devoured by the smog and just getting uh, by the fog and just getting like fucked up <laughs> just awesome i have no idea how they created this much fog like that much thick fog and the way that it like travels and wraps around the bodies, but yet they they cut like a shape when they move through it. Like you see their silhouettes perfectly. It's so beautiful. It was John Carpenter chain smoking. Yeah, just one after another. <laughs> <laughs> just in a tiny room, just creating all of it. Yeah, pulling it in. Like there's Rob Bourdain just like pushing it in with a fan. <laughs> <laughs> I like when you listen to the the thing commentary with Carpenter and Kurt Russell, you can hear them smoking chain smoking cigarettes the entire time. <laughs> and at the end, go, Kurt Russell goes, "Hey, this hasn't been too bad, you know. This the cigarettes haven't been stale, you know. The coffee's all right. I just thought, who's smoking sales stale cigarettes? How do you even buy stale cigarettes? I think he just. I think it's just like a surplus that they both had from like the eighties. <laughs> just still smoking the same one. Stevie uh, makes an emergency broadcast on the radio to get the sheriff to call her. Um, I said it's a good thing that he has a quarter for a payphone. Just the fact that you always had to carry change with you everywhere you went back then. Little stuff like this still boggles my mind, and I remember using payphones and stuff. But it's just fun to go back to these times when everything was so different about the world. Yeah. And it's just the yeah, it's a quaint quaint part of it all where they're not over they, they they are reacting to what's happening, but they're still 
a lot like levels lower than I would be in this situation. <laughs> all of them, all of them in the town. I love them. I love them to bits. Where yeah, they are so everybody's. They're all very chill, and the fog seems to have like a sense of humor because, or a sense of irony, because they're like, oh, as soon as the call connects, the fog climbs up the telephone pole, and the sparks shoot out of the wires, and it shorts them out. Uh, yeah, takes out the power turbine too. Which I thought, just to show, like, the, the power generator for the town itself. Yes. That was pretty cool. Yeah. It, and it was done in a way that was, yeah, like, like I don't know how, how they did it with the fog creeping in. Obviously, we said it's John Cobb, the chain smoking, but how it, how it creeps in back then. And, and it looks focused. It, like, normally when you see fogs, it just sort of, they don't look like, it doesn't look like they're controlling it. Like, it just fills the screen. It looked like it was going into the turbine. It looked like it actually was <laughs> messing it up. Uh, the, the the you know the power generator, like they actually did mess it up with the fog. So for a second, as I was watching it, I was like, "Oh, they had something in there that was shooting the fog out, and then they reversed the footage, which would make it look like it was you know going into those very focused areas." But then sparks shoot out of the thing in the same shot. And I'm like, but the sparks would be backwards too. I don't know how they did it. Yeah. That's where it breaks my brain. Because I figure half the gag out and I can't figure out the other half. Yeah, I never really get that that reverse vacuum thing that you get so often with fog, like in the Evil Dead and stuff, where yep. you can so clearly see that it returns to one singular source point and the, the film's just in reverse. I don't know how they do it either. Sometimes it looks like it's an overlay and other yeah. times looks like it's actually there on set. Mm. And I have a hard time telling the difference. Yeah. There's definitely uh, some opticals uh, overlay, like when they're driving across the town and the fog looks almost like the blob from the, the early version of the blob where it's just like on top of the screen moving across. But it's like a testament uh, to how the film was made because uh, like you said, Sean, I do yeah, sometimes you know for sure when it's happening, but sometimes you're like, is that? Oh, no. Wait, how did they do that back in 1980? <laughs> so, the power's out. Andy, the kid, is with the uh, old lady, Mrs. Colbright or something. Colbert's. Yeah. Uh, this lady was like stereotypical old lady babysitter. She just had those vibes. Yeah. Bog-standard bog old woman. Mm -hmm. Um... The fog surrounds the place. Stevie gets the generator going just in time to get the radio up and running. She yells for Andy to run and for anyone to go to her house because her son is trapped. The Andy goes to his room. Right as he crosses the threshold and closes his door, the old lady gets it at the front door and gets dragged into the fog. You, you know what my, my theory is, is that the ghosts were listening to the radio station. They were looking for their next victim. And they were like, oh, thanks, Stevie. We know where to go. <laughs> <laughs> it's after this point that the pirate starts to do a Jack Nicholson impression, <laughs> smashes the door with his hook, which this is where I was confused about the rules. Um, uh, this, and now Tom Atkins shows up with Elizabeth in the truck just in the nick of time. Tom Atkins smashes the boy's bedroom window open and then terrifiedly pulls the boy through sh jagged shattered glass <laughs> it's, like, in real life this kid would have lacerations gashes yeah. in his legs 
And it's just there's something very comforting about the fact that every time you see broken glass in this movie, it's very clearly sugar glass. Like yeah. when the his truck windows blow out, you're like, that's not what truck windows look like. That's that's chunks of candy. <laughs> also, it looks really comforting to have Tom Atkins pull you out of a window. <laughs> yeah, it feels like it's a blanket. You just in this doughy physique of a blanket. Like, I could just yeah, I could just put myself in his arms and like let him carry me to safety, and I'd be okay. So, some something tells me that this isn't the first time that. Tom Atkins' character has smashed through a glass, uh, through some glass to get into somewhere. It seems like he's done this before, you know. <laughs> um, Elizabeth is now on the driver's seat. The truck is spinning its tires as Tom and Andy get in, but they escape, and the fog recedes and retreats from the house. They're We're right. back at the the party for the statue, and um, the statue lady the party commissioner agrees to be taken home. I love that everybody, like, I don't know what they, the actual story that the townspeople think is true about the founding of the town, because the statue is of a ship, right? Like, the statue that they're commemorating is also of a ship, and I'm like, do do they know that the ship crashed, and like, that's how their town was founded, it was because of the gold in the ship, or what? Oh, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, like we don't we know what the urban legend is at the beginning of the of the film. Yeah, but it doesn't. It sort of stops. <laughs> basically, is the, the the old fisherman stops the story when it gets interesting. Right. <laughs> uh, Stevie says on the radio that the fog is approaching Antonio Bay. This is where she starts giving directions like she's Google Maps. Uh, <laughs> We get all the characters taking refuge in the church. The priest seems very drunk at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he leaves the journal outside in the pews as they all take shelter in one of the back rooms. Uh, Just to pause on Nick there. Goes, what, what, this, is, this part I loved probably, probably the most because it reminded me of Assault on Precinct 13. But this time instead of like, you know, gang members coming through the house, you got Leprosy, you know, leprosy pirate ghost, which is just infinitely cooler, coming to get you, and it's just barricaded <laughs> against them. I loved it. That's didn't uh, we talk about John Carpenter loving an outpost and like a barricade? Yeah, Bravo. Yeah. That's that's where you got the inspiration from, isn't it? Uh, it's Prince of Darkness is also uh, a barricaded movie. Yeah. The thing is, you're in the thing. You're barricaded, but it's more by the weather. Than by anything else. Anything you but, yeah, Carpenter, Carpenter well. loves he loves people stuck in an outpost. Yes, and and like in the thing, the barricade as well is whatever's <laughs> inside the human, the thing. Ugh. That's another barricade for <laughs> the thing to get out of. <laughs> but it's yeah, it's also um, let's see, um, well Halloween as well in the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he loves his barricades. You know. Ghost of Mars, <laughs> yeah. you're on Mars. And you got Jason Statham <laughs> and Ice Cube with you. Maybe, if I remember. <laughs> hey, put me in a cage with Jason Statham and Natasha Hinstridge, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just leave it out there. I'll either, yeah, yeah. <laughs> leave it open. Um, the, this is where the priest finds out the truth. 
of what happened and that essentially it was all a ruse and the journal says that I am the thief and the church is the tomb of gold. Uh, five people have died, so by the priest's math, that means we need one more death to make it a gentleman six and get out of here. I like the the fact that he was reading the, the diary at the correct pace, that the culmination of the story and the action has happening at the same time. That's... He was like, like earlier in the evening, he kind of maybe went for a little drink or something to slow the pace down because it had to happen that he discovers the culmination right then. I love it. Both, yes, it... both the priest and the diary combined together to become the ultimate plot device. Yeah. Uh, he, Carpenter also likes a, a, a tome, a book that has a bunch of facts in it because he used the same device in uh, Prince of Darkness that we just talked about. And kind of in Mouth of Madness, although it happens in reverse because yeah. everything comes to life. So, oh yeah, the the pirates smash into the lighthouse. Um, they're going after Stevie at this point. Um, the priest learns that the villagers melted down the gold into a cross, <laughs> which confuses me because I thought they would use the gold yeah to to fund... build the town. Yes. And it's also um, that that cross is so big and so bling how would you like that basically <laughs> if you were to look at the finances of the town you'd be like right so we have it, it reminds me of that that the wind drill tweet you know if someone's good at economics please help me because it's like we have 20 dollars yeah. for food we have 15 dollars for services we have ten thousand million million whatever dollars on this cross Someone, with, um, someone who knows the economy, please help me. Well, get rid of that fucking cross. <laughs> my family is starving. <laughs> yeah, my, my town is starving. <laughs> how heavy is the solid gold three-foot-tall cross? Hal Holbrook is hench. In real life, it would, be, it would be hundreds of pounds, right? Yeah, yeah it has to be. Every time I see a character in a movie with one gold bar, they always struggle with it when somebody tosses you a gold bar it hits you in the stomach and you go oof or yes. die hard yeah, yeah exactly so yeah i think this priest is carrying a 300 pound cross is what i want to <laughs> he, believe he's a former, Just outstretched in his a former strong man <laughs> <laughs> so he carries this the 500 kilogram cross out into the church and yells blake i have your gold <laughs> And Stevie, at this point, has climbed on top of the lighthouse dome itself. Uh, the priest says, Blake, take me. Um, Stevie, meanwhile, gets stabbed with a hook. I, I, I had seen this movie recently, or a few months ago. I, for some reason, I thought they actually killed Adrienne Barbeau in this point when she gets stabbed. Because it looks like it goes into her neck, yeah. that hook. Oh, yes. I think she gets it in the shoulder, though. Or something. Um, after she grabs the hook and swipes at one of the pirates, and his face is gross worms on it. Yeah. Two weeks in a row with worms, Josh. And I, there's so much worms in in Carpenter films. Yes. And, and, and I got it. Like this just reinforces that the main badass in this whole film was Adrian Babo. And like I also love the sort of the cat and mouse game she plays with the ghost. Like I love that there's that shot where she's on the outside. And there's like a uh, one of the ghost figures walking on the inside, and that's how she like you know tries to evade him. I'm like, yeah, 
like I mean, I, obviously I'm in love with Adrian Bravo to begin with, but I'm so like loving in love with her even more in this character of like how awesome she is in this situation. Again, can't stress enough. Terrible mother, but really good <laughs> against Ghost. Umar, how would you describe what happens when Blake puts his hands on the cross? Okay. What's hap What's happening here? Okay, okay, you tell okay, me. Okay, about okay. I'm, I'm... okay. Um. Okay, I'm going to say it. orgasmic. It looked like it. It looked like it. <laughs> I, I can't deny it. There's definitely a building to a climax happening, and Tom Atkins kind of blue balls him and pulls him off before it finishes. He, what, what was it called? He had him. Um, oh, what's it? Jelking. <laughs> he had him jelking with the cross or whatever. He's going to hit climax, and he stopped him. Nice one, Tom. He, he had him stopping there. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the cross starts glowing, the priest starts coming, Tom pulls him off, and Blake disappears with the cross. It's freezing with and... that, Tom did not pull him off. In fact, Tom did not. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, you take over, I'm done talking. <laughs> oh, you keep doing it. You can't stop. Oh, no, wait. Well, what did he do there, Josh? Come on, you just, you just send it off for me. I'm not going to even take that. That's bait right there. Carry on. Dang it. Carry on. Uh, so, the cross, it's glowing like something you would see in, um, oh, what is that? There's Raiders? a band. What up? That Raiders? It had like a sort of Raider oh. sort of vibe. Yes. Uh, and I like that suddenly all of the haunts disappear. Like, it, it glows and the climax is everyone just kind of disappears and goes away. And there's no, like, I wish that they dropped all their weapons or, like, they turned into bags of bones or something. Something more dramatic than just a shot of nothingness. Like, that's, <laughs> that's your climax. That's your result. <laughs> when... That is true, though. When, when the climax of your movie is there's something missing from the screen, that's not quite what you want to see, is it? <laughs> right. It's, not, it's uh. not quite as cool. I mean, like, in Prince of Darkness, we had the, uh, the woman sinking into the mirror and the mirror shattering. Like, that was something. That's, yeah, I was thinking that the Prince of Darkness ending is a lot better than this indie. I, I gotta, yeah. Just just the final shot. I gotta say as well, like even Assault on Precinct 13, it ends with an explosion. But they're being barricade, uh, barricaded and oh, yeah, yeah. He, he takes a sniper shot and it explodes. Literally oh, climax. Yeah. Like So yeah. Stevie gets on the radio to wrap up the night and says something like I don't know what the hell she was talking about. If we don't wake up in our beds this nightmare could happen again. The fog tried to destroy us. If you are a ship, look for the fog. <laughs> she sounds a little delirious at this point. I think it's PTSD kicking in. Straight away. Like, it, like, she I also like shit. that after this has all happened, she still has not gone to go get her son. She's staying <laughs> on the radio station. Like I said, terrible mother. Brilliant at her job. <laughs> And Father Malone is going to wrap this movie up by dying to asking us why you needed six. Why not me? Why not take me? And then the fog reappears. All the pirates show up and Blake 
cuts him down with a sword to end the movie. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Blake did the same thing what Stevie did with giving her a dress on radio. Was like when he said, "Why not six? Because like, oh shit, yeah, 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 you're right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's like when the kids like, wait, teacher, you forgot to assign us homework. <laughs> that's what he did. He death by homework. <laughs> And why did why did he want to die? Like he seemed like this was his destiny, and oh, like Tom Atkins denied him of it by pulling him off that cross or something. I, I think his alcohol, alcoholism got too far, and he just wants a way out. It's more. It's in fact, I think this is more depressing than Dead Punch Shoes. <laughs> the ending. <laughs> <laughs> well. That was definitely our longest episode ever. Really? I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but yeah, you did it, Umar. You broke the record. Fuck Congratulations. Yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> oh, boys, we did not synchronize the first time. So we'll do a clap. And Josh, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to figure out how to synchronize with the edit. Oh, shit. Um, so we'll figure it out. I'll figure yeah, so, it out. Um, well, yeah, Umar, it might be hard for you to do the headphones to your microphone. So let's just do a one, two, three clap. Okay. Uh, right. Let's hear my mics here. So the one. Okay. Two, three. Nope. That was horrible, guys. Oh, okay. <laughs> let's try over to one, two, three. Oh, no, no. no that was horrible. <laughs> I think that's just the GMT yeah. internet lag yeah. right there. So bad. So bad. Sorry, guys. That, that oh, should Lordy. be close enough. Um, Umar... What do you give the fog? I give it. I say, but with other John Carpenter movies, like a six and a half, seven. But as a movie by itself, like a eight, because it still is good. So yeah, seven and a half. I give it seven and a half because okay. which isn't too shabby, but it is. There's better John Carpenter movies out there, but I still enjoy the shit out of it. It is a romp. And it is bonkers, and it is brilliant at the same time. And, yeah, it's, it, it is, the, like, the perfect chaser to Dead Man's Shoes because you need anything as a pick-me-up, and this is the best pick-me-up because it is just non-stop silliness, but in the best way possible. I do feel a lot better after having talked about this movie, to just wash all of Dead Man's Shoes out of my brain for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> that was truly a big mistake, watching these movies in the wrong order. Yeah, yeah. You, you, like, it's like, 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 like yeah, instead of like a cho uh, shot chaser, it's like you did, like, yeah, chaser shot. <laughs> so you did the other way around, so it's yes. messed it all up. <laughs> exactly. Um, I watched this movie a few months ago, and... I was a little nonplussed with it, but I, I don't think I was quite paying enough attention. This time I was definitely more pulled into the atmosphere and the ambience and the town itself. Um, it's a little bare bones at parts. There's some goofy stuff that, you know, it doesn't make sense or it's just kind of whatever. But overall, Umar, like you said, I think for a carpenter, it's middle of the road or maybe a slightly higher than that but for just an average movie i i think it's really good and really fun um i would give this a three and a half out of five uh it's solid movie that i enjoy watching 
I'm not going to run back to my TV three months from now to watch it again, but give me a year or two, and I'm sure I'll put it back on. So, Josh, what are, you, what are your thoughts? Uh, here's my argument. The Fog is a perfect napping movie. Yeah. Yes. yes. It, it is, it's got that cozy feeling. Nothing too extreme. Even when the people start shouting, they don't get too loud. Everything is kind of nice. <laughs> you can wake up and you see some spooky imagery, but nothing is like that gory or in your face. Um, this was like a, one of the gateway horror movies for me. Uh, kind of like probably late um, elementary school, primary school time. Uh, so like this and Christine were my first Carpenter films and they were my first favorite Carpenter films. Uh, even though like Halloween felt too cold to me and this felt like such a lived in world because you got so many different little characters and it also felt a lot like Lost Boys because you get like a similar town yeah, uh, like a, a coastal California town uh, and I liked that I gave it three and a half stars uh, plus a heart on Letterboxd because I, I will grant it is not Carpenter's best film but it is one of my favorites just because that sentimental kind of feeling I have toward it. Also, the fact that... Um, have either one of you guys seen the Garfield Halloween special? No? Uh, maybe when I was a kid, but okay. it's been a long time if I have. It's the same story. Really? really? Yes. Yeah. It's basically the same thing. There are ghost pirates in it. Um... And I think he has to give back some candy in the end. Uh, Garfield does. And then there's a whole ending of like, that was all a dream kind of a thing. And then something spooky happens. And that's just one of my favorite uh, Halloween traditions is to watch that. So this, you know, it's kind of a, it goes hand in hand. And I got to agree with you 100% that this is a perfect sort of nap movie because yesterday when I watched it I did watch it in darkness with just you know, like sort of ambient backlight on in front of a roaring fire and it was cold outside Ooh. and it was just perfect Ooh. for that I was like this is where this movie should be watched and and when it gets crazy and it gets silly and like you know, like the like the plot holes and the things that don't quite make sense I, you just roll with it with this one it just is fine you're like Doors or no doors, it's fine. You know, if if, if the if the the priest was feeling suicidal at the end, I'm okay with it. It was fun. It was all fun. I love that with John Carpenter. If you're able to adapt that uh, mindset of like the things that don't matter, don't matter, just move on. If you can get that mindset, you can really enjoy so many more movies. Just in general, yeah. if you're not looking to pick them apart but to just let go and go along with the ride um i think that's why i have a tendency to enjoy most movies i watch because i want to enjoy them yeah so i i want to be with them and so i'll i'll try to let go of any like critiques and stuff like that and try to get on board with whatever i'm watching because if i'm if i'm watching something i hate it what am i doing yeah it, and going off a bit of a tangent here this is why i absolutely adore uh, equal, equalizer one and two, starring Denzel Washington. Silly, silly oh, movies. Yeah. And the thing is, John Wick compared to him looks like a masterpiece. But 
I enjoy the shit out of him because it's just Denzel Washington going around shooting people and and like doing mini calculations in his head for some reason and somehow they work. And I'm like, yeah, I'm on board for this. So I like that sort of mindset of like, yeah, if I enjoy it, I'll keep watching it. And, and, and there have been films where if, if I end up over-critiquing it in my head or stuff like that, I either mentally check out of it or I just switch it off and watch something else because I'm like, I'm not enjoying this. This is why I'm pulling it apart so much. With the fog, it's the opposite. I, I'm, I'm into the, I'm into the whole setting. I'm into the world. I'm into the vibe. And you know, like you said, Josh, it's completely a nap sort of movie. That's the best way to describe it. It's one that, you know, on on an early evening, you, you know, it's something that I, I guess that John Carpenter nearly got with his PG aspect because it can, with some editing, small editing, be a PG movie and it'll be fine. Like kind of like. It's kind of like got tourist trap vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys seen that? The, the yep. slasher? But it's not quite a slasher, but it is a bit creepy and weird, but it's very cozy. I think, and that is one of my favorite um, genres of, of spooky movies. Like, the movies that you want to watch on, like you said, with, with a roaring fire on kind of a chilly day as we head into autumn over here uh like that's kind of perfect for that you know like it's not grueling it's not a, a big emotional expenditure it's not dead man's I, I think the combination that you can do for dead man's shoes and this is i don't know pretty much yin and yang as, uh-huh. as you, yeah. you got you got the absolute depravity and the shitness you feel after watching uh dead man's shoes while in uh, the fog, you get a priest getting jacked off by a ghost, <laughs> which is amazing. And on that note, yeah, that's perfect. That will bring us to the end of the show. I love Umar, it. what would you like to plug? Oh, uh, I, I know it. you well, have a lot of stuff going on, man. Well, let me just start off with this priest. Stand-up. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> so, well, uh, yeah, a lot of stuff. Um, I have untethered. Not not untethered. Sorry, lad three coming out for Kickstarter backers in the next month. I'm literally putting the final touches with the team in terms of the book, like the story's done, but we just need to the front cover, back cover, and all that stuff, so it's ready for print. Uh, that's going to be you know, ready to be shipped out next month at some point. Uh, but also, I'm going to yes. be my first ever proper Comic-Con in over two years. Uh, 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 really nice. I think it's uh, the largest comic-focused uh, convention in Europe called Thought Bubble. It's in Harrogate on the 14th or 15th of uh, November, so seek that out. Um, as well as that, oh yeah, uh, my computer game uh, Closed Hand, uh, Closed Hands is being launched on Steam in two days uh, on the 4th. Oh, nice. So, dude. That's a big deal. Yeah, so seek that out. Uh, I have a few um, ones, a few games that are signed, not games, a few comics that are signed NDAs on that I can't talk about, which should be coming out next year. Really interesting. One in particular is in process of being finalized contract stuff on that, but it is something that is going to be really interesting if it, you know, if it, if it comes together. Um, as well as that, uh, I, think, I think that's it. Oh no, there's this Yule Time horror comic anthology that I've 
uh, have a short story in, uh, you know, about the Krampus. Oh, perfect. Is, I think it's done on Kickstarter, but it should be available for print or digital in the next couple of weeks. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. But like I said, Sean, a whole bunch of busy stuff going on. Hard for me to keep, you know, a handle on it all. <laughs> yeah, your world is kind of exploding right now in the best way possible. So I'm really happy for no, you. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, for me, you can check out the podcast I do called Nashville CA. Uh, I think it's pretty good. Uh, join our Discord. You could talk to me there and share your opinions about all the reasons that I'm wrong about things. Josh, what do you have? Uh, I make bread. No, wait. No, that's me. <laughs> that's, Josh, that's... that's me. I'm the one that makes bread. <laughs> Uh, no, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I believe I'm at Spartacus. You can find our show, uh, Twitter, Nashville CA, and uh, Instagram at Nashville CA. Um, this is pretty much what I've been doing lately, especially for this month. This is our spooky month. We're doing one every week. I'm so excited. We're off to a bang, two in a row. Done, yeah. yes, nailing them down. So, um, next week. Josh, what what do we have? Uh, coming up next is ooh, Bone Tomahawk and the Descent. Yes, ooh. I am so excited for this one. Oh my god! Yeah, that's it's gonna be a hard hitting, creep me out, yeah. uh, make me crawl out of my skin double feature. I like it. Hell yeah! So that'll be next week. Until then, listeners, please be kind to yourselves. Be kind to your neighbors. Take care of everyone, and we'll see you next time on Nashville CA. Bye. Bye. Bye.